Hello and welcome to the Standing for Truth Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Bedinsky, and together we will venture on a journey to explore the truth of biblical creation. Our ministry is also available on YouTube, so please search Standing for Truth and get access to the video versions of our programs. I'm Donnie Bedinsky, and as usual, stay awesome and trust in the truth of God's Word. All right, looks like we are live. Welcome, everybody, to Standing for Truth. My name is Donnie B, and I am your host for today's program. This is day two, session three. And Matt, that's looking good, brother. I I feel you. <laughs> so uh, this is going to be a presentation with Matt N. from Standing for Truth Ministries. And uh, Matt will be doing a highly comprehensive presentation titled Genesis Genetics. I am pumped for this. I've had some sneak previews over the uh, last couple months into this presentation. And I can say you are all in for a treat today. We are going to be having some novel arguments, some novel testable predictions. And it is safe to say that evolution will be dismantled tonight. But not only will evolution be dismantled, the biblical creation model will be emphasized strongly. So not only do we uh, refute evolution here on Stand for Truth Ministries, Matt, as you know, we also uh, put forth the stronger, the superior model. So I do want to quickly remind people yesterday was day one in terms of our uh, Defending Genesis conference. And it was a comprehensive day uh, roughly four hours of uh, just nonstop information. Uh, we kicked off the conference with uh, Sal Jardina. He gave us, uh, we were blessed with a presentation, The Relevance of Genesis. We had uh, over an hour discussion on the topic where we really focused on evidence for the flood and refuting lots of uh, objections to the flood. And then we had T-Rock here <clears throat> where we focused on uh, dating methods. Specifically, the presentation was titled The Isochron Method and Other Dating Duds with T-Rock. Of course, this one was a ton of fun. Technical. That's why the T in T-Rock stands for technical. And uh, we're doing about four hours a day, guys, um, in terms of this conference. So this is day two of five this week. And, uh, you know, we're starting off the day with, with Matt N focusing on Genesis Genetics. Then we'll be back here after uh, Matt's presentation for uh, day two, session four with CJ Cox, and he will be uh, countering compromise. So what we're doing in terms of the format for this specific show is Matt is going to be giving a presentation and he's going to take as long as he wants. He's got a lot to cover. He's going to make sure he gets through it all. And then um, as that's going on, I will save uh, several questions and we will get to as many of those questions as we can until we reach uh, basically the two hour mark. So Matt, uh, what's going on, brother? How you doing today? Doing good, man. This is going to be exciting. I've been getting this ready to go for everybody for a long time. So should go good. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Uh, okay, man. Well, I'm pumped. The audience is pumped. 
So let's uh, let's kind of get right into it. Let's get right into the fun, Matt. I am going to give you the floor, brother, and have some fun, but not too much fun. <laughs> All right. All right, everybody. Here we go. We're going to be talking on the genetic evidence of Genesis and evolution as well. I'm trying to enlarge this as much as possible. There we go. So before I jump into the technical stuff, let's talk about some things that I want to cover for Christians that are watching. Like, what is going on with the young earth creation? Why does it have any relevance to this? And I like to ask them a question back in return. When we look at this genealogies going back, where do these people stop becoming real people? That's what you need to ask yourself. If this is a lineage and you trust that Jesus is real and that Abraham is real, where do you give up on that? Where do you give up on Noah? Do you give up on David? Do you give up on Adam? Because really we can't do that, right? Jesus said he died for the sins of Adam. So what's going on? Why do so many people today say, oh, it's not really a true story. We don't have to take it um, literal. It could be allegorical. Well, even historians that are against the Bible literally admit that anybody through history, any professor that's been teaching this Old Testament has always taught that it's been a literal version. The global flood worldwide, literal, six days of creation, literal. And then um, we have people arguing all the time that, well, it was just James Usher that really was the first one to ever do this. And nobody believed him, believed like him before that period. And that people today only use his arguments. And it's more of a modern day thing. But actually, if we look into history, we find that people have been doing that with uh, the book of Genesis for a really long time. Matter of fact, it starts in 240 A.D., that's not far after Jesus himself, that people were using the genealogical chronologies to determine the age of the earth and the age of humanity based on Adam. And if you go back to Adam and there's six literal days, well, that takes us back to creation. And a lot of people go, well, you know, what about the Jewish people? Well, they also believed in young earth creation and they only changed their mind because of the theory of evolution recently. We can even look at their calendars to prove this. Guess what? Their calendars still reflect a young earth. This is the year that they believe that it is. Uh, one year behind, actually. I need to update that. But nonetheless, the theologians came along and they said, well, I guess we're just going to have to accept what the modern day science is saying because we can't refute this. So we're going to obviously have to change scripture. We're not going to have to like learn the science you know, God forbid, we're actually just going to change our beliefs around because that's what we have to do. But there's a problem when you do that, because in order to like, you know, say, well, uh, well, it's, you know, we can, we can be creationists, but we can believe in evolution. We really can't do that because nothing makes sense. It's still contradictory. You have the big bang, nothing about the book of Genesis goes along with it. It doesn't match anywhere. So if it doesn't match, what did the church do? Well, you know, the Catholic Church was the first one to actually come up with the Big Bang idea. So they just said, well, we'll just abandon the literal view and we'll just say it's all allegorical. The entire thing. Why not? Right. I mean, why? Why? Why not just accept evolution? Well, here's why. Because if we look in the history, we actually find that it comes from pagan ideas first. These ideas aren't new, really. They're scientifically new ideas, but they're pagan in origin and they go really far back. Matter of fact, it wasn't 
that people thought the uh, earth was old all the time. Matter of fact, it was only just a little while ago in the 1700s that somebody actually questioned it and said it's more than a few thousand years old. And it was James Hudson who brought in uniformitarianism. But besides radiometric dating, what was there? To There was nothing that said that the age of the earth was old. Nothing. So they have they have to have deep time. You see, they need it because it makes the impossible possible. Therefore, they can just say, well, you know, you know, we can just say that the days were really, really old. Uh, we can invoke that there's some evolution. Just add time and time becomes everything. It, it makes everything possible because you don't need evidence. You can just say, well, add enough time. That's that's what did it. And for the critics out there, we already know that they don't question anything. We've we've already experienced that. OK, so for the Christian, it comes down to not whether or not you have to be a young earth creationist to believe to to you know, be saved. It's just the foundation of what scripture is actually saying. And is it really true? Is it, is God's word true? Is it, is it a literal thing that we can trust? And we're going to go over the evidence of that today. But before we do, we have to talk about what is science? What is falsifiable? What is making testable predictions? How did Darwin come up with this idea? Um, is it really scientific? So we're going to jump into those things right now. This brings us to the next part. And that is that scientific theories must make testable predictions. And what strengthens a theory is whether or not these testable predictions come true or not. If they do not, the theory is now falsified. The real battle is over the exact same evidence. We view it one way, they view it another. But why do they view it this way? Their interpretation is that everything goes back in time for millions of years. This is the debate. Which one is true? Evolution or creation? You see, in Darwin's day, there were three camps of creationists. There were the young earth creationists, known as biblical literists, who are us and still exist today. There were the old earth creationists, or day-agers, gap theorists, intelligent design, and theistic evolutionists, as we call them today. Then there were the non-literalists, or allegorical or symbolic genesis interpretationists, very similar to how Catholics are today. Many of them were theistic naturalists, so in Darwin's day, the majority of people believed in the non-literal version of Genesis, where the flood of Noah never happened, and God created species as they were, where they were. This is what Darwin focused his attention on, by refuting and attacking the non-literal biblical view, such as the Catholics hold today. Which, of course, he ended up proving wrong, thus winning the war of mainstream biblical creation versus his new theory of evolution, which states that animals can adapt and change in new environments. People just didn't know he only refuted a very strange version of the non-literal Genesis way of thinking. This idea all began long before him, but by Darwin's day, it was established and very popular. And this is where the story leads to him going to the Galapagos Islands which were colonized in the late 1800s. The tortoises once thrived in the archipelago, where there were originally 15 species on the islands. However, since the arrival of people and the introduction of numerous feral animals, four species have become extinct. Darwin wrote about the harvesting of the species of tortoise only found on one of the islands, which was exterminated within 15 years of his visit to the Galapagos in 1835. Darwin predicted that within the next few decades, each species would go extinct and be gone forever. Since evolution is so slow, there is no way it could save them. 
He believed this because he trusted that deep time evolution was true and that speciation was a slow process. Because of this, he believed that the different tortoises on different islands could not mate with one another, as they have been separated over just too much time. Darwin believed that the Galapagos Islands broke off from South America millions of years before and isolated the tortoises, each to their own island. What do we know today? Well, recent genetic research has shown us that the tortoises are related to one another and can still breed with one another. And what he thought was extinct was not extinct. And that the species he thought were completely extinct actually were still living on today and their genetics were mixed in with the other ancestry. Today, there are 13 tortoise species in the Galapagos with more hybrids being discovered all the time. Darwin's predictions based on deep time evolution being true failed yet again. Darwin was right about the role of natural selection in producing varieties of tortoises, however, but he claimed that it disproved the mainstream biblical view of creation. As he personally believed in this non-literal theistic concept of Genesis, which held to a creation event known as fixity of species. Meaning he believed that God created the earth kind of how it is, and that since there was no global flood where animals got off the ark, diversified, and rapidly filled the earth, that never happened. And since many Christians in his generation also had abandoned the idea of a literal global flood, they were easily convinced and fell away from the faith. People like Darwin never considered the what if it was a literal story. A pair of related species got off the ark and adapted to new environments. That's literally what it says happened in scripture, and what creationists would have believed if they took Genesis as literal. To those who believed the Bible is real history, including all creatures having to repopulate the earth from one location, it would have been a completely consistent finding. The church's allegorical view of Genesis gave Darwin an easy straw man argument to knock down. So did Darwin really debunk a literal creation model of Genesis? Not even close. You can learn more about these sea tortoises on different islands from Creation Ministries International's stunning Darwinian documentary called The Voyage That Shook the World. We view things very differently than the evolutionist. We talk about rapid adaptation to environments. There's recombination, gene conversion, chromosome fusions, and epigenetic adaptation. These and possible mutations which can inhibit genes influence the tortoises and why they look different from island to island, but are yet all recently related to one another. And if deep time was true, the evolutionists would be right and they would not be able to mate with one another and their genetics would show massive amounts of genetic dissimilarity. And yet, what do we find within related species worldwide? Genetic similarity, the exact opposite of what was expected to be found, which led evolutionists to make another retrodiction that a global bottleneck must have happened in the past, completely contradictory to what they had said earlier. And here's an image of one of the oldest tortoise fossils on Earth, hardly any difference from those alive today. But a lot of people ask, Darwin was a pioneer. And yes, he was wrong on things, but he got the most important thing of all right, which is natural selection. And that's true, isn't it? Well, I have bad news for you on that front as well, because he plagiarized that from other people. That's right. Darwin plagiarized it mostly from Edward Blythe, which was a biblical creationist. And we know Darwin stole his ideas because they had communications with one another. And Darwin not only took use of his ideas and work, but even special words that had never been used before, that were invented by Blythe to describe things, now made it into Darwin's book. 
But he did not just plagiarize him. Oh no, he took the idea as well from other people and mixed it in. This study, which was done at Trent University, discovered that without Patrick Matthew, the origin of species would have never been written. For Darwin took his ideas and also retrofitted them in, expanding on Edward Blythe. Darwin was nothing but a plagiarizer. So his most famous voyage, and looking at tortoises, is great proof of biblical creation and a complete falsification of evolution. So yes, Darwin got his ideas of deep time from those before him. One of his biggest influencers, besides his grandfather Erasmus, was a trained lawyer by the name of Charles Lyell. He popularized uniformitarianism, the idea that all things have continued as they are now over time. Does that remind you of anything? It should. It's actually a biblical prophecy about the last days, which states almost exactly what people would believe in these days, stating, all things will continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So by Lyell's single phrase, the present is the key to the past, he just disqualified any catastrophic event in Earth's history, including a global flood. Because he argued that we can only interpret the past through the lens of what we see happening now, today. This is why the education system does not talk about catastrophism and why it's also still frowned upon all these years later. This is precisely what Lyell did. With his one short phrase, the present is the key to the past, he automatically ruled out a historic global flood from the picture without ever mentioning it. He replaced history with his made-up version of it, adding eons of time to the past without any biblical history at all. And this is an excellent legal tactic, as you know he was a lawyer. But is this really scientific? Not at all. It's the opposite of science. It's actually pseudoscience made up of lies then backed by an agenda and disguised as science, but I digress. His comment about the present is the key to the past is purely anti-science. It rules out any possible alternatives for the reason why things are the way they are, because you are not allowed to consider anything other than what we see happening today. That is literally the definition of a dogmatic cult thinking. It's literally putting blinders on scientists and telling them anyone who disagrees or thinks about anything else other than this that they are wrong, no matter what evidence is presented. This is the modern-day basis for the belief of deep time and slow, gradual geologic processes. He is the reason the masses believe in a fossil record and millions of years today. It's not because the science proved anything like it, and certainly not because it's true. Lyell stated in one of his letters in his journals that was found after he died that his goal was to free the sciences of Moses. That was his agenda. It was all based on a lie. And Charles Darwin, at age 22, fresh out of school, brought only a few books with him. One of them was Charles Lyell's Principles of Geology. And one of the things that Lyell said was that if he were to push this as far as it could go, that he could prove that men came from the orangutan. And right after that, what was pushed so heavily in 1924? That's right, there were three fundamental human types, the white, the yellow, and the black, all related to their own primate species. The Asian, the orangutan, the black, the gorilla, and the Caucasians related to the chimpanzee. Charles Lyell with his lies influencing the science yet again. 
all these years later. So before the 1800s, we have Hudson's book, The Theory of the Earth, published in 1795 that made people doubt the Earth was young. And then we have Lyell's book, The Principles of Geology, which made people doubt Noah's flood. And then we have Darwin's book, The Origin of Species, which attacked a straw man argument of the fixity of species that was believed by people that did not even believe the biblical creation story was true. And he made people doubt the Creator. These three people influenced all of science that we believe today. And Charles Darwin is related to the Rockefellers. And today, they fund the public school education system. And they are notorious for saying that they do not want a nation of thinkers. They want a nation of workers. And they know that the people will believe whatever the media tells them to believe. And evolution is pumped out to kids and adults on a constant rate. And they admit that even if all of the data pointed to an intelligent designer, such a hypothesis is excluded from science because it's not naturalistic. So when you're not looking for something, you will never find it. And then they'll claim that there's no evidence for it. Let that sink in. Another problem that we have is atheistic evolutionists today have incentive for doing what they're doing. They also don't want to feel as though they've wasted their life. Not only have they gone through the entire school believing something, that would look really foolish of them to actually now admit that they were duped and fell for a lie. But then they actually paid to learn more of it in college. So that's money down the drain. So not only do they have time and money invested into this, but then they start teaching others. Then they have to admit to those others what they taught them was a foolish lie as well. That puts them in the sunk cost fallacy. It's the phenomenon whereby a person is reluctant to abandon their strategy or course of action because they have already invested heavily into it even when it's clear that they should abandon it because it would be more beneficial to them. They just cannot do it. All right. As you guys can tell, I had prepared that earlier because I didn't know how much time I would have. I didn't know if everything would work good. And I at least wanted to get some of my presentation going. So I will be sharing screen constantly and I'm going to be putting up visuals. I might not completely talk about everything that's in the visual, but I just want everyone to at least have a screenshot of what I'm talking about in case they want to use it for themselves later. So these are the subjects that we're going to at least try to cover today. These are This is my intent anyway. And we're going to go down the list and we're going to show why creation is so superior evolution compared to predictions that were made versus predictions that were falsified. And this is a screenshot This is really good. And I'm also going to have to thank Brandon from our team who made these images with and for me. So this is going to be great. And uh, you guys can thank him as well for that. And the first one we're going to get into is genetic similarity. Now, a lot of people know that today, evolution uses genetic similarity as their best evidence for evolution. But the reality is, is this is the exact opposite of what they predicted. You see, in 1963, Ernest Mayer, an evolutionist, said that if deep time is actually true, that genetic dissimilarity would be what we see um, because what will happen is over time, genetics will be too scrambled up and things will be so diverse that there will be no genetic relation when we look at things. And a young earth creationist in 1975 said the exact opposite, said, no, a common designer, a common creator would create everything that would have similar everything inside of them. And we should see those similarities. So because of that, when we look in the genome, we're going to expect to find genetic similarity, the exact opposite predictions. 
And so now we have, before any of the genetics was actually ever tested, we have testable predictions made by each side. Which one ended up being true? Well, it was inescapable and stunning, as they put it on evolutionist side, that genetic similarity is actually extremely high. And this is not what they expected. This is why they had to invent a genetic global bottleneck with all of life, because to them, they were correct. Evolution, that is right. The mutation rate is so high that if deep time was true, it would have separated everything genetically by so much, nothing would be even remotely close to looking related. What did we find? We found exactly what Young Earth Creation predicted. And our model, as you guys know on this channel, if you're new here, you're going to learn that our model predicts that we share genetic similarity based on function. What do we know today? Well, guess what? Genes are now being predicted based on their function when we look at sequences. So when we read a sequence inside the DNA, we can go, oh, look, that's a telomere. Oh, look, there's another sequence. What one's that? Oh, that looks more like it's satellite DNA. Oh, look at this one. That one's unique. What does that go to? Oh, it's a different part of the genome altogether. It's an orphan gene. So we're being able to identify different sequences, different sentences, and those sentences tell us what functions they have inside the body. So now why do we share genetic similarity with, with something that a young earth creation would say we're not related to? Because when we look at these things, we see a high number, right? It's like, whoa, 98%. That's pretty odd. So what would happen if we looked at the uh, phylogenetic inheritance showing genetic relation? Okay, we got humans related. We get Neanderthals. And then all of a sudden, we jump down into chimpanzees and then gorillas and then a pig for some reason. And then an orangutan, right? It's like, what in the world? A pig before that one. That's interesting. So what's going on? Like, why, why do we have this? It's like, why would a pig be in there? And how come they have so much genetic similarity? Are we related to pigs more than we are the orangutan and the pongo? Because when we look at that, we see the, and that is true, the orangutan is about the same as the pig. So therefore, they try to strengthen this argument by going, well, mm, that's true. You know, we, we do share genetic similarity, but uh, we got to look at homology as well. So therefore, this is what they say. You know what? I never noticed this, but my pet bat has the same number of fingers as my pet alligator. Isn't that a quinky dink? One of the main arguments Darwin used for his theory was that of homology, these odd similarities between very different animals. Why would they be so similar unless they were related? So it makes sense, right? It's like, well, we have a hands and then we look over at a chimpanzee. They got hands. It's like, uh, well, you know, then we look at a lizard. They have hands with frogs, have little hands, all five fingers. Oh, you must share a common ancestor, right? But, you know, we we started the genetic evidence started conflicting with what the evolutionists were looking at when they started comparing the molecular analysis with the physiological evidence. Right. They noticed that there was a flaw when they looked at the orangutans. They go, why? It's like why they were noticing that the homology structure was different than the molecular data. And they got upset about this. They said there is no theory holding that molecular similarity necessarily implies an evolutionary relationship. It's like, wait, what? That's all you guys are saying is the most is the best evidence for it. So they're here. They're implying that homology is actually better. So the molecular data that contradicts the idea of genetic similarity denotes relation is often dismissed. So they're saying like, okay, well, homology seems to line up better, but we're going to get rid of that because genetic similarity is better evidence for us. 
And Nathaniel Jensen, as you know, who wrote Replacing Darwin, said we will be able to know better relation if we had judged this not on just molecular data, but functional data, right? So evolutionists came along and they were like, well, you know, what? how do we know what's related and what isn't? Okay, so we as young earth creationists, we use the mitochondrial DNA, the autosomal DNA, and the Y chromosome DNA. Why? Because they are traced in a linear pattern directly to what is related, right? And we can, we can follow this back in time to a single person. Evolutionists don't do that. Did you know that? When they build their phylogenetic charts, they don't look at the observable evidence. They infer it. They actually base it on something entirely different. And, and these are protein coding genes, which I'm going to get into. These aren't paternity tests, which show relation. They're entirely something else. So that's why I said we like to follow the direct line of evidence that can follow something. So when uh, Jensen, as you know, is saying that these functional differences are what we see, we can come along and say, now, why is there genetic similarity even in, in these protein coding genes? Well, because we view function as something different. If we line up cytochrome C, which is something that they like doing, which is a protein coding gene, and they go, look, we can now build the, home, uh, the phylogenetic charts using this area of the genome, this protein coding gene. This is really good. So now they build their chart. Well, they can't actually compare it to other parts of the genome by comparing something like cytochrome C because it builds entirely different charts. So they have to narrow down and cherry pick and look at particular types of data sets and ignore everything else as where we can just take the data that comes from what we know to be true following the direct lineages and we know that there is no phylogenetic chart at all. And we base this on function. That's why we share some protein coding sequences with other things. Take um, why we would share more genetic um, protein coding genes with a chimpanzee like uh, rather than a frog. It's because of how we also uh, grow our hands, right? A human is, hand looks like a web. And as we mature in the womb, that web disappears between the, between the fingers. So this is a functional role of that protein coding gene determining how we are built. So it's a function based on the, not only what the structure looks like, but how that structure forms. It's a functional difference. As we're a frog, they grow their fingers out from the base, out from the root. So therefore, now we have reason on why these functional differences exist and why they make any type of pattern at all, and also why they refute one another and why they stick to that. And here's another short clip. I'll give you another example to break up with the monotony of just listening to me. If you look at different creatures' DNA, the rule of thumb is the more similar, the more closely related, and vice versa. Biologists expected to see a gradual branching path of DNA mutations from species to species, and they did find some success. Take, for instance, this little guy. He's a gene called cytochrome C. You can find a version of him in such places as your handsome or beautiful self, chimpanzees, dogs, moths, even yeast. He's one of the most commonly sequenced portions of DNA, so it's a great test case to see if the similarities hold up and point toward common ancestry. So, if we compare your cute little cytochrome C to this ugly, hairy chimpanzee cytochrome C, they look exactly alike. Weird. With dogs, there's about 90% similarity. Moths, about two-thirds similar. And yeast, only about half similarity. Wow, just what we'd expect. These results must be really strong evidence of common ancestral. Whoa, no. Who let you in here? Shoo, get out of here. Meet cytochrome B. He's a lot like C, except he likes to throw monkey wrenches into Darwin's expectations. He's just one example of many. If Darwinism is true, we should be able to construct a reasonably consistent family tree, pretty much no matter what genes we compare. 
But that's far from the case. In reality, using genes like cytochrome C as evidence for common ancestry is just a good example of molecular cherry picking. Depending on what genes are used, biologists will come up with wildly different ancestry and contradictory trees of life. Comparing different animals' cytochrome B genes, scientists found cats and whales cavorting in the primate club, kicking poor little cute little tarsiers out into the cold, frogs and birds and fish carrying on together in their own strange little group, and even sea urchins masquerading as chordates. It's madness! <laughs> so, as you can see, they, they can only build their phylogenetic trees and their charts if they choose to only look at one particular region. They can't compare other things with it because it destroys the rest of the trees. They can't make any phylogenetic uh, tree of evolution because they all contradict one another. That's because it is not true. So when we look at, for example, superoxide dismutase, uh, another metabolic enzyme, and we compare it to another uh, protein inside the human body, another dissimilarity shows. They don't they don't uh, coalesce. They don't. They don't link together. That's why a lot of these college books, like Tree Thinking and Evolution 101, which are college books, don't even attempt to try to show any common ancestor to anything. They said our knowledge of molecular processes is not good enough to definitively rule out independent origins. As a creationist, that's exactly what we would expect, right? But they admit that in their books because they know that they can't prove anything because every time they try to look at a particular region it shuts the other prediction down. It disassociates it. It's not true. That's why they can't build it. So what do we do? We take the observable data, the Y chromosome, the autosomal, and the mtDNA, and we track this back directly in a line of what we know and what we can see. They infer it. They take a protein coding gene, they take one section out of it, and then they build a chart based on that as much as they can on their perception of what they believe the evolutionary tree should look like. Of course, there's even discrepancies looking at cytochrome C, but it's the best they can get. That's why they ignore the other data. So like I said, I'm gonna be putting pictures up. You guys can tap screenshots of whatever you like. I might not cover all of them, but I made them anyway. And I made a book to go along with this so anybody can later follow along or get the book just to pass out, things like that. So. A uh, quote from somebody says, genetics has no proof of evolution. It is trouble explaining it. The closer one looks at the evidence for evolution, the less one finds of any substance. In fact, the theory keeps on post uh, postulating evidence and failing to find it. It moves on to other postulations like uh, missing links, natural selection, positive mutations. It's just not science, right? It's just a, it's just uh, throwing out. It's inference saying, oh, just look over here, right? But what do we know? We know that when it comes to predictions, that's what makes a theory strong and that's what falsifies another theory. This shows the strength that the best evidence for evolution is literally what we predicted and they, you turned it, they wheeled it, they changed it and made it evidence for them when it's not. So never let anybody ever tell you that the best evidence for evolution is genetic similarity because it's cherry picked nonsense, lies and the genetic evidence that does show any type of relation, like why do we have even uh, some type of resemblance to it at all, just shows that a common designer, because it's based on function. So it's, it is the reason that we would see something and it was not predicted at all by evolution. Why? Because a programmer doesn't start from scratch each time he develops a new program. Instead, he uses the same general command that he uses for other projects. It shows the creator's eff effective efficiency and integrity, right? So if we as creationists 
We could have easily been falsified. We could have looked in the genome of animals and we could have seen multiple strange like uh, sequences. We could have found like an alphabet in English in one and then find a binary mathematical um, sequence in something else and then something else over here. And we would have been in big trouble because that would make it look more like there were if we wanted to still hold to intelligent design, we would have to say that, well, maybe there's multiple designers maybe there isn't one God, maybe there's multiple designers that created life. See, we would be in big trouble. But the fact that we do see so much similarity and it all shows the exact pattern, um, it, it, it shows that there is only one designer in all life because he used the same program, the same code. Why would a programmer use a different source code for every piece of software rather than use the same framework and language for each application? It only makes sense. And look at God's creation. Look at um, the... Look at how the regulatory network for E. coli is compared to the Linux operating system. God's design is superior than everything we can even make today. And design is everywhere. I know there's people like Godless Engineer out there and other atheists that deny this, but literally the biologists, the, the atheist communities, uh, geneticists themselves admit that this is true. Here's an example of that. Is the genetic code really a code? It is a code. It's definitely a code. But nevertheless, there is no problem in saying that DNA would be a code in just the same kind of way as a computer code. It certainly is a code. Uh, you can read it as a code. You can you could even transcribe. I think I put this in Rivaratabim. You could even transcribe a book into DNA letters, and you could read it out again. You could, you could preserve it in DNA. That's that's how code-like it is. It really is completely code-like code, a digital code. Is merely quaternary rather than binary. We've shown that DNA is actually the software of life. It's totally interchangeable between the digital world and the biological world. The DNA code itself is so digital, is so almost exactly like uh, a computer tape. Scientists have come to the amazing conclusion that our bodies contain digital code. In fact, Bill Gates, you know, the founder of Microsoft, tweeted, DNA is more advanced than any software ever created. Think about it. A program or code is written by someone very smart. The more complex the code, the more intelligent the author has to be. So here's the question. If our DNA code is more complex than any man-made software, where did it come from? Is it possible it was authored without an author, programmed without a program, materialists think so, through neo-Darwinism, the modern version of Darwinian evolution? So yeah, when we look at the language of life that's that we see inside the human body, we see a language, a hierarchical pattern that describes a literal code and it's everywhere. Um, you know, when we look at, they even use actually linguistic rules when they, when they, we talk about genes, we talk about transcription, there's editase when we edit a gene there. <laughs> I mean, it's everywhere around us. So, you know, the evolutionists, they have a lot of problems because they want to ignore this type of, a, of data and just say, oh, it's all by chance. Well, you can believe that all you want but this is why scripture made it very clear and very simple that god gave us creation so that we would know that there there is a creator so that no one is without excuse 
So it's very, very simple. And when we go into the molecular data and we look at different forms of life and we're trying to build this hypothetical imaginary tree of life, there, there's inconsistencies because they're trying to use different forms of uh, evidence to build and construct their phylogenetic trees. And one of those things is homology. But when we look at molecular data, it would show that rhinos are actually closer to hedgehogs than they are to elephants, which are... Um, obviously much look much more similar so they have to invent things like convergent evolution and convergent evolution is when things cross pattern then they they gather the same type of physical appearance and look even though they're not related they came to the conclusion that they got this way through convergent evolution over time that's why a shark and a dolphin would have the same fins for example so how did eyes evolve well for them these evolved because of um, convergent evolution, but they have to admit like, well, they're so different. They're so highly complex. They rise out of nowhere. Maybe there is an independent origin because when we look into the, uh, what they used to say, well, look at that. The cat, the eye must have evolved 50 to 100 different times. When has everybody, anybody at any time ever seen any experiment produce the formation of any eye, even, uh, at any point. I mean, it would have to evolve the gene, the Hawks gene to begin with. It would have to now create mutations that aren't harmful at all because anytime you throw a mutation in the Hawks gene, or I'm sorry, the Pax6 gene, which constructs eyes, it causes horrible problems, usually blindness. So how can random mutations that are more often than not harmful create eyes? Well, convergent evolution. Therefore, it only has to do it once and then pass it on, right? Um, how about bats and dolphins? Did you know that they say they're related? <laughs> that's right conversion evolution because they have similarities because they have lived similar lives what are they talking about how do bats and dolphins have similar lives they don't have any similar life at all they live in like literally the exact opposite conditions one lives only in the water <laughs> only other one lives only in land how in the world can they say that they have they share similarities because of their environment they don't share the same environment how about milk? Like they know that mammals like cats and dogs, they produce milk, right? But did you know there's also ants that produce milk? That doesn't make any sense, right? No big deal for the evolution, right? Just throw in con convergent evolution, right? It's no big deal. <laughs> Makes no sense, right? It's just a rescue device. It, it's there to throw in things that don't make any sense. How about the baculum bone that's in... Um, all primates, all primates, but they say, wait a minute, humans are apes too. Oh yeah. Well, we're missing that bone. Where is that in the fossil record? Just showing like, oh man, we just lost this vital reproductive organ uh, bone and then grew an entirely new organ. Where's the evidence for that? There is none, none. How about flight? That's right. Flight evolved over seven different times in evolutionary history in literally every different field that there is like, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, grouping of animal, right? We have mammals, we have aquatic species, like in fish, we have uh, birds, bats, we have insects, flights everywhere. But what do we actually see? We see loss of flight. We don't see anything's gaining the ability to fly. Look at how many times loss of flight has actually occurred. What's that about, right? We're seeing loss of flight all over the place. <laughs> we don't see things learning to fly. We don't see like, wait a minute, this thing has a, a little tiny wing. And then we investigate it. We go, oh yeah, it lost its ability to fly. We don't see anything going to flight. So it's just this imaginary scenario that they invent to help them through the fact that they don't have evidence because what we see is the exact opposite.
that brings us into the next one. Creation would predict that we would only see one genetic line going back to single people of the X chromosome and the Y chromosome. But evolution predicted that there were multiple people every single time you go back to a bottleneck in history. There were at least, they say, 10,000 women and 10,000 men over 200,000 years ago, right? But like, what's going on? They said, ah, you know, these are the first pioneers of people. They didn't look much like us. They kind of did, but they were more primitive in features. We say, no, 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 no. We go back to Noah and with the Y chromosome, but you can trace everybody back to Adam and Eve, right? That's one of the things that we should be able to do. You know, we are able to find a genetic sequence that we can trace back to single people, not groups of people. Because if you assume that there were 10,000 women or 10,000 men, then we should see multiple lines of that evidence inside of the of people today, but we just don't see it. We don't see the scenario of a bottleneck 200,000 years ago, or even the other one of 74,000 years ago in the genetics. We don't, that's not there. What we do see is the biblical ancestry where we find people going back very recently in time to a Tower of Babel event where there was dispersion and massive population growth. And genetic similarity between all humans is really, really, really low. And that can't really be based on how fast the mutation rate is and based on how everybody is related to one another, you know, uh, but what is the, if you type in, you go, look at this, there is only one descendant uh, that we all came from in both male and female. That wasn't what they expected, but it's exactly what the biblical model would have said. And they admit that we can safely say that the scientific, with fair scientific certainty, that every man alive today descended from one man and every human alive today descended from one woman. And it is exactly what our model predicted. And that is not an evolutionary idea that would have ever been predicted, especially with in regards to, as a matter of fact, that's why they mocked the idea of biblical creation to begin with because they uh when they when they named mitochondrial adam and mitochondrial eve it was kind of a a laughing at the creation is saying haha you guys thought that everyone came from adam and eve six thousand years ago or so and now look now now there's populations of people that lived ten thousand years ago and uh and they lived two hundred thousand or three hundred thousand years ago right so they kind of mocked everybody by saying that and now it turned around to be a slap in their face which brings us to one of our first predictions which is the haplotype block predictions versus the evolutionary haplotype type right uh dr nathaniel jensen would say that you know we came along and we would say that the first haplo uh type people uh adam and eve would have had uh, blocks the size of the entire chromosomes right evolution would have never said that so what do we see when we look inside of people today? Those balloons are going to represent haplogroups, okay? Now, we see different haplogroups, but a lot of people don't know why or when or how they got there or how they formed. So what we're going to do is we're going to look over at Adam's perfect genome, which was mutation-free. And the very next um, generation that came, uh, came over with one mutation, got handed down, right? And then over time, another mutation, another mutation, and another mutation occurred. So when this happens to a population, if we don't see very many mutations between people, they, they go back in ancestry not very far. But if we see more mutations in people, we can trace them further back in time. That means when we look at the populations of the world today, we can actually see that 
we can trace lineages back all the way to a single group of people. So that's how we determine what a haplogroup is. We look for markers and we go, oh, this group of people have one type of mutation that other groups don't have. So we can name them or letter them, whatever you want to call it. And now we have haplogroups and those haplogroups form. And now we can say, interesting. So if we assume then that Adam and Eve had complete haplogroups, that entire size, how fast would the recombination rate be to break down these blocks into smaller and smaller ones? That was one of the test uh, group uh, predictions that was done by Dr. Nathaniel Jensen, who said, let's test this theory. Let's break this down and look at gene conversion rates and recombination rates and not make any assumptions about the past except for uh, a hypothesis that they were entire blocks that got broken down. How far in the past could we go? So his prediction showed us that we could easily explain the haploblock groups that we have today could have formed in the biblical timeline and they don't line up with evolution whatsoever. So then how is that possible? Well, gene conversion uh, breaks up linkage blocks. And we know that when we're looking at populations and groups of people, this is a genetic drift um, uh, indicator right here showing a population size and how many generations. Look at this. If you have a smaller group of generations of people, fixation is reached really, really fast. Some are lost and others reach fixation quickly. And what would we say happened? Well, after the flood, there wasn't a very many group of people, right? There was not many. And they were in small groups and they migrated together and they stayed in smaller populations and they grew in a population together. And then all of a sudden they went to the Tower of Babel where God confused the languages. Then they dispersed and broke up into smaller groups of people. And then once they were in these smaller groups, it started again. Gene conversion, recombination rate, breaking up all these blocks into different groups of people. And when we look at the human history, we go, wow, something happened around 5,000 years ago where our human diversity rapidly exploded. And this is looking at exomes, by the way. And then Jensen uh, ran it on sucular, uh, uh, single nucleotide variances and got the same results yet again. And they admit that mutations are relatively new. They only go back about 200 to 400 generations. And then something happened, creating massive amounts of harmful mutations. Well, that's the biblical timeline. That's literally what we say happened. You know, mutations are arising in people. And we can literally go, well, if they're new mutations, we could trace them backwards in time. We get to a, a person that has less mutations. That can only be a good thing for them. Evolution says, ah, it's okay. No, they, they don't make much of a difference. You know, it's just mutations. <laughs> so we'll get into that soon. But we're saying that this Tower of Babel, which has actually been found in historical things, this is what a carving and engraving showing that our ancestors actually believed in it as well. And they actually, it's uh, uh, one of the rocks we found. We see that if we go, if we trust the story and we go, where did this happen? Was this the Middle East? Or was this in Africa? Because if people lived in Africa for uh, hundreds of thousands of years, you would expect that massive people would also be migrating around in Africa and diversifying in smaller groups, getting mutations, and haplogroups would be forming left and right. But what do we see? We see the most haplogroups actually forming and exploding out of the Middle East, exactly where we would expect it to be, not in Africa. So think about that for a second. So we would say the exact opposite happened. We say that this happened, that all of these haplogroups started forming and grouping and people began migrating around the world and getting isolated in different regions, but not this one. See, you're looking at Shem and Japheth's line, right? They branched off and they didn't have a border. Ham did. And let me explain it to you like this. The Tower of Babel 
is where all of the people work together at once. The languages got confused, and each son got um, handed down a gener um, uh, inherited land. Ham's line got Africa. So they went into Africa from the Tower of Babel, and something unique happened. The Sahara Desert started to form, and it grew rapidly. And so as it grew rapidly, it pushed Ham's generations or Ham's genealogies deeper into Africa, and they became isolated and trapped. What would this do to genetic inheritance? Well, it now makes them so they can't mix with other people. So now they have smaller groups of people living in Africa. And these smaller groups of people are now stuck there with less genetic diversity than they would have had. And now all of a sudden, these groups of people have smaller population tribes. They're mutating faster because they have, they're living in the tropical regions. They're living in smaller populations. They have faster rates of recombination. And all of a sudden, they're generating mutations at a faster rate. So it makes them look different than the other groups that are now able to intermingle with one another and diversify and go across the entire world and populate everything. That couldn't happen for Ham's line. They were stuck. They were trapped. And when we look back in history, what do we notice? Evolution tells us, well, if you go back into the past, you know, humans came out of that bottleneck 200 to 300,000 years ago. It's like, okay, well, that would mean that humans lived for 100, let's give them the benefit of the doubt here and just say it was 200,000 years ago. That means they lived for 195,000 years worldwide after, you know, because out of Africa happened after this, you know, um, everywhere. They lived and they waited 195,000 years before they all started doing exactly the same thing everywhere. Human history starts being recorded about 5,000 years ago. All of history. What do we see? Civilizations rise 5,000 years ago. Writing systems between every group 5,000 years ago. How about mathematics? They say, oh, around the same time. Mathematics, you know, we can trace it right back to one group of people. Boom. How about uh, magnetic decay? Oh, same thing. Not very young. How about uh, the oldest trees on earth? Trees don't die. We have trees that are just, they think they're organisms that, that never perish. But yet the oldest trees in the world go right back to the flood. How come there isn't one 10,000 years old? That would easily refute us. The only time they can ever get those dates is because they they might use something other than dendrochronology where they're testing the, uh, the, the actual rings of the tree. They have to infer it based on something else because the obvious answer is, it's not old. We have helium diffusion rates. goes right back to the same, same timeline. How about the oldest desert in the world, the Sahara, what we just talked about? Well, guess what? That formed very, very quickly. They didn't expect that. And it formed fast, not very long ago. Oh, it, it went from green to a desert in a flash, exactly like we would assume it did. It went from lush to, to desert. How about genealogies? We can trace genealogies, and some of them um, are ancient. This is one in the British Museum. It, it, this one traces British kings that have an unbroken line of chain of evidence going all the way back to Noah himself. You know, then we look at flood, flood legends around the world. Uh, that's like that's amazing how much they even still have in common. Has anybody ever played the game of telephone when they were in school? That original story hardly makes it around the classroom without being totally distorted. So by the mere fact that they have flood traditions that even hold any resemblance at all is still amazing after this amount of time. But here comes another logical question then. If all people started out in the same place and, this, and, and knew the same type of a, 
uh, the same type of thing. They had the same building construction. Would that mean that they would take this knowledge with them? Because obviously they wouldn't take the same language. They lost that language. They, they, but one thing they wouldn't lose is the ability to how to construct something. And when we go to different places in the world, on the entire opposite continents even, we find that there are pyramids, there are construction zones that are all based on one particular thing, mathematics. And that mathematics is always the same, meaning it matches. And I'll show you exactly what I mean in this short clip that I got for you. The diameter of the drop of water on a waterproof surface, like granite or alabaster, is constant. It measures one centimeter. They named this small unit the royal finger. Ten drops of water or ten royal fingers equals one royal hand. One hundred drops of water, so one hundred royal fingers or ten royal hands, equals one royal leg. Centuries later, these discoveries were taken out of secret coffers and renamed. The royal finger was called the centimeter. The royal hand, the decimeter and the royal leg, the meter. They were presented as recent discoveries and the French appropriated them made in France. The diameter of the drop of fresh water measures what is now called one centimeter. Water is a universal constant. The size of the drop of fresh water will never change for thousands and millions of years. Yes, the universal unit, the meter, was not invented in 1780. So quite interesting, right? How we in the world could we have um, a mathematical situation where all people around the world know the exact same type of measurement? Well, it's because you can trace them back to a single group, a single group of people that were building and constructing the same tower. It's why they knew what to build and what worked and how to measure something. They might have lost the language, but they never lost the math. Or what makes more sense, the Egyptians decided to travel around the entire world themselves, creating the exact same structures everywhere. I mean, that makes no logical sense. But when we look at the construction of all pyramids that we've ever measured, they all use the meter. Now, what is the logical probability of that happening? I wouldn't want to defend that argument if I were you. So anytime there's a discrepancy and we find modern man outside of Africa, they just go, uh oh, we just need to chalk it up to a primitive man. Right. They found um, handprints that were discovered in Tibet. And, oh, that's not in Africa. They're 300,000 years old, according to geology. Right. Um, that, that that breaks up the. Uh, the tree of life, right? Wait a minute, man's supposed to be evolving in Africa and they're stuck there. They can't even get out for another 150,000 years. So what's an identical human handprints and artwork doing somewhere else? Well, they just blame primitive, primitive man. They just say, well, it's some other species that was literally identical. <laughs> so humans evolved twice then is what they're saying in totally different regions. <laughs> so good times there. Then we have human population growth. This one doesn't look good for them at all, because when we're looking at the human population growth, that that literally lines up with the biblical model of ancestry. You can't have groups of people living even based on the decay curve of how many people have kids every generation. When we look at population growth arguments that they line up with young earth creation numbers every time down the line. That doesn't make any sense if if they're telling us that human beings have existed for even hundreds of thousands of years, you have to account for them not being able to produce what we can today. If you say, well, 
you know, they were uh, they were just in Africa. They 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 didn't migrate out. They were just trapped in this one region. Wait, wait a minute. You just said that they were in other regions of the world. You said they were they were Neanderthals doing this. They were Den Denisovans doing this. There were other populations of humans growing. Why couldn't they do it? It's like none of the story makes any sense. It's like they all just waited to the last five thousand years before they all decided. Yeah, we're going to grow. We're just now we're going to populate the entire world and we're going to explode in population growth. That doesn't make any sense. So the testable predictions come from what we know and uh, what we can see. And we can go interesting. Let's test. Let's make predictions now based on what we observe. Let's uh, based on mutation rates, based on population growth rates. And let's take these back. And when you do that with evolution, you get the problem of Occam's razor where you know, the simplest explanation is usually the right one. Well, when we use young earth creation, all of the evidence is simple. It all lines up. They have to invent these ridiculous rescue devices. And that's why we have no problem. We have no problem saying that um, these haplogroups formed exactly where we think they formed. They formed rapidly all at once. Dispersion happened. We have evidence that we can only trace back to a single person in the recent history, not deep time. And there were, uh, there is no um, march of progress. Here's a video I made specifically on that one. If you like the subject and you want to uh, learn even more, then I recommend getting a book on that one. It's called Why Human Evolution is False. And uh, we will move on to the next one right now, which is the Y chromosome. Now, this one is unique because this one really um, destroys all of them because uh, mutations build up in the Y chromosome and we can literally say, well, if deep time evolution is true, we should be able to trace these backwards to a common ancestor split, right? Where the Y chromosome would be saturated in mutations because mutations happen there so quickly. But if young earth creation is true, we'd be able to trace backwards in time to a recent common ancestor of Noah with only few mutations and not even close to mutational saturation. So what happens is when we look in there, we go, hmm, we can build a phylogenetic chart on the ancestry and we see the Y chromosome mutation rates higher again in Africans. So therefore the evolution goes, hmm, that must mean that Africans are the oldest again because they have the most mutations. Well, that comes down to predictive power yet again, because that takes an assumption. And that assumption is that mutations are always the same between every single people group in the world. And that also assumes that mutations are slow and always constant between all people groups and that Africans always existed first and that only people came later after them. But that is where it gets destroyed again by Dr. Nathaniel Jensen. And he wrote this information in a book that you can find called Traced. And in this book, it's that's highly technical, I'm going to break down for you. We see that in it, he breaks down four different study groups. And when we look at the two blue ones on the left, we see that these are pedigree studies. The, and these pedigree studies only looked at a very small section of the Y chromosome. And they didn't look at the entire thing because sequencing the entire thing is very hard. And the reason why is because it's about 58,000 to 600,000 base pairs with 200 genes. So it's very, very complicated. And what happened is when they were looking at the two on the left, by just looking at a small section, they only found a few mutations. And they said, oh, good just a few mutations is really good for us because the mutation rate's very slow if you just count those mutations up. And therefore we can get very old dates. And therefore they plastered everywhere that humans must go back hundreds of thousands of years because the mutation rate is slow there. But then somebody decided to sequence the entire thing. 
And this is really good because once they sequenced the entire Y chromosome, the exact opposite evidence came in with a mutation rate more than double of what they had expected it to be because they didn't expect other mutations to be in the other regions of the Y chromosome. And the reason they didn't expect it to be there is because in mitochondria, and in other parts of the genome, the mutations occur in what are called hotspots. And so they gather there, for example, in the D loop of the mitochondria. So therefore, when they found mutations in the Y chromosome in one little region, they said, oh, they must not be occurring in another region. So it makes kind of logical sense, but it wasn't for sure. Nobody had ever tested the entire thing. So then what happened is Dr. Jensen ran that and said, oh, look at that. There is tons of mutations in that in that region. And when the study discovered this, they went, uh-oh. So they actually hid this information in the supplemental area and didn't let the public know. And they said that this information prompted us to explore additional filters, meaning they went, oh, that contradicts what we need to be true. That's way too fast for deep time evolution. We're just going to say that we have to look at other filters now that give us a slower rate. We're going to ignore that area. And then another study in 2017 came out, making the mutation rate even faster. And so what happened is uh, Moretti came across and said, we're going to do pedigree studies on 17 father pair sons. We're going to uh, look at the entire thing and we're going to break down the entire raw data and see how many mutations are there. And lo and behold, Dr. Nathaniel Jensen predicting that the Y chromosome should go back just a few thousand years was absolutely spot on. And we got another prediction made by creation that was true, that the mutation rate was going to be fast. And it pointed to a recent common ancestor of Noah going into the past. And then we jumped back into his book, which is the Rosetta Stone of human history. And it shows us the true answer to this Y chromosome data, where he decided, I wonder how many total mutations are in people's Y chromosome alive today. And he did just that. And he said that there are about 440 mutations. Well, if there's three mutations per person per generation, how many generations back does that go? It's only about 150. That's not far. So if you use a generation time of just 30 years, that takes us back about 4,380 years. Exactly what we would predict if, uh, if the global flood was true based on mutation rate accumulation through the Y chromosome. And see, the mitochondria is very hard to test. The reason why it's hard to test for mutations is because every generation doesn't even get one mutation. It gets like less than half of one. So it's very hard to actually count. But this is very easy to count because we, it's more than one. So you literally, we don't have to guess. We don't have to go, oh man, this person got less than one, less than half of one. This person got half of one. This one's just much, much better, much more clear. The data is easily read, but it gets better. Now, what would happen if we went back to Noah and we started counting from Noah? Because we have a prediction made right in scripture, right? We said it writes that in the generation of Peleg, the people dispersed and went across the world. Well, that can be tested now. So what happened is Dr. Jensen said, what is the common ancestor mutation of the person that was the common ancestor of all of the haplogroups that formed rapidly? Well, guess what? If you count from Noah and you go to Shem and then um, uh, Abram or Elam, and then you go to Canaan, uh, Salah, Eber, Joktan, which is the sixth generation over, you get to Peleg's generation, Joktan and Peleg. And then we have the the uh, uh the history of the world in written scripture right here that's exactly what happens when you get to that generation when we read all the haplogroups form 
So what are the odds of that? We literally have the evidence, like what Dr. Jensen said, that is the Rosetta Stone of human history because we don't have to just prove that we can go all the way back to Noah. He's gone a step further and shown that we can actually count from Noah forward and also get predictions correct on that as well. So that makes creation another awesome, powerful tool to prove the biblical model of ancestry that shows we're much more recent and that there is not, again, another line of lots of male ancestors going into the past hidden somewhere in our genetics and DNA. That doesn't show up anywhere. Right. And when you compare the Y chromosome to, let's say, a chimpanzee, it's horrendously different. It doesn't match at all. Matter of fact, it's so different that it actually matches more of a gorilla than it actually does a human, a human being. <laughs> so it's the exact opposite of what they would expect when you're trying to use it in evolution, let alone human ancestry. It doesn't even work with evolutionary history because we see that the study of the Y chromosome that developed unusual structures that make them very unique to humans. So if you wanted to learn more on that one, there is a local global flood video that exists specifically on that. Also a book as well, but the videos are a little more entertaining sometimes. And then that brings us to the next one, which is females. Now this takes us into the mitochondria, which gives us the same thing. What did evolution predict? Well, they predicted very few mutations, right? And so um, creation, we predicted a lot of them. So evolution came along and they didn't have any observable data yet. So what did they do? They said, well, we assume that a split happened six to seven million years ago. So we're going to calculate that in. And then we're going to use and build this molecular data and calibrate it to the fossil record. We're not going to use observable data because we just don't really have any yet. We're just going to assume evolution is true first and then go from there. So they started building their phylogenetic charts around this and started getting random dates. And the dates go all the way from 1991. That was the earliest I could find all the way up until current times. The ranges go from 72,000 to over 300,000 years. But they predicted that we would find based on this to turn, you know, a common ancestor, one substitution every 300 to 600 generations. But what we did find is the exact opposite. We found one mutation substitution, not mutation, one substitution occurring every 33 generations. Now, substitution is a mutation that takes course, uh, takes its place in a population, which means it's more accurate than just judging by a regular mutation rate. But regardless, it was 20 times higher than was expected for evolution to be true and only takes us back to around 6,000 to 12,000 years. The exact opposite of what evolution needed to be true and not even close to what they could even push back by using the slowest studies that they've ever found. Instead, they got what they needed to change later, which was the observable rate that takes us back to a mitochondrial Eve around 6,500 years ago. And that's because there's two different clocks. There's the phylogenetic rate, which I told you they invented, and the one that we actually see and observe and what actually we can make predictions on as opposed to what we can't make predictions on because it's based on a lie. So therefore, do they, do they still do this today? Well, here's an eons evolutionary video of them admitting, yes, they do, do that very thing by using the molecular clock method. This method combines what we know, or at least what we think, about how often genetic mutations occur, and then applies that to DNA samples to plot the evolutionary history of various species. But to be accurate, this molecular clock needs to be calibrated. Needs to be calibrated. The molecular clock. The clock needs to be calibrated. <laughs> the clock needs to be calibrated. 
this molecular clock needs to be calibrated. The latest molecular clock calibrations. So, yes, they don't even feel embarrassed about saying that it needs to be calibrated. They just say, yeah, we calibrate the clock. It's no big deal. What do you mean it's no big deal? You're assuming evolution is true. The clocks that are observable say it's not true. So you calibrate the clocks to say that it is true. Get out of here. That is ridiculous. That is so nonsensical. It is re it is foolish. And they know that the observable one is trustable because guess what? They use the FBI uses the rate. They use it to convict murderers. You can't say that the clock's not true when there's people being convicted of crimes today because of it. So <laughs> it has to be true, or else they're going to be letting a lot of people out of prison. So. Uh, we know it's true because you're they're literally getting a mutation somewhere in the germline and then it's passed on to the next generation. So let's say that I decide to go kill my neighbor and then um, I stab him in the neck and he dies and they come over and they rest me and I go, I didn't do it. My dad did. That's why. And then they go and they go, oh, the DNA evidence is, is showing that. Yeah, one of them did it. We just don't know which one. They have similar uh, DNA. So what they do is they look in the blood and they go, uh oh, there's a mutation in that that the dad doesn't have. It could not have been his dad. It had to have been him that killed him. So that's how important it is to know that mutation rates are important and they are used by um, in science and they are used by the FBI. That's because they matter. So when people say, oh, who cares about these? Nobody cares. Nobody uses them. Yes, they do. They have to be used. And the, yes, they are accurate. They're not using the evolutionary one. Why? Because it's not true. That's why. What we do know is what we see. And look at all the studies that go back in time and show us. Look at this range. It goes from 4,178 years ago to 10,000 years ago. That's what the observable data shows. And here's all the studies that show that the observable rate can explain the genetic diversity of people in a young earth creation timeline using the mitochondria. The evidence is in and people and then, then we get critics that are like, oh, well, Dr. Jensen, when he used his, he didn't use the co coalescence calculations. Oh, look at that. He did. Oh, it looks like somebody didn't do the research, did they? What a shocker. So when we're making predictions like Dr. Nathaniel Jensen did, he said, hmm, I wonder what the mutation rate would be. And the differences that we would see inside of the mitochondria when we look at differences based on the mutation rate and how many mutation differences we should find. If evolution's true, they would find 681 or even more. Again, he does them favors by lowballing all the numbers. And what we actually found lines up yet again. So the question is, which one of these is correct? I'm going to go with the observable one. How about that? How about what actual science does? You know, the repeatable, testable, scientific version of science, not some made up woo-woo psycho path, uh, you know, pseudoscience version. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. But let's see, how far back do people actually go? Huh? Can you trace your grandparents back to actual human beings? Are, are you tracing them back to animals? Are you tracing them back to anything other than human? I think the answer is pretty obvious. And yes, pedigree rate studies have been done on animals. The same results occur. Pedigree rates much faster than phylogenetic assumption rates. We look at um, not a lot of things obviously have been tested um, because they don't like the results. So they just stick to their made up phylogenetic version. But every single time the results come back with creation, they don't they don't show evolution any way, shape, or form, no matter what they do. Yeah, they have rescue devices like, well, maybe mutation rates were faster in the past. And, oh, maybe uh, selection was stronger or maybe this, maybe that, maybe that. Yep, again, more, more rescue devices. Nothing 
in science can can confirm or uh, what they're saying. None of it. So it's actually evolution versus science, not creation versus evolution. There's a big difference. So always remember that. Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. That's right. Without evolution, atheists have no grounding to stand on. That's why they need it to be true. They have an obligation for it to be true. They have to have it. So we don't care. Like I said, there is no reason that young earth creation has to be true for salvation purposes. There's plenty of Christians that don't believe in young earth creation, and it doesn't even matter for salvation. So why in the world would we believe it? How about because the evidence always points to it? So how about molecular clocks? Do they actually tick at different rates? Evolution says no. We say absolutely. Not only do they tick at different rates, they actually tick at different rates within the same species, even within different human beings. That's why when we look at charts like this, which is the Y chromosome and the mitochondria, they have different stars like this that, that shoot out. And different people groups have different mutations because they mutate at different rates. That's why these charts exist. So that's what comes to another prediction. Nathaniel Jensen said, I predict that most African groups will be found to mutate in their muta uh, DNA almost, almost two times faster than reported with, the, what, with what we see in other people groups today. So um, that's why we can trace them back to Noah's three daughter-in-laws, but there's different webs that shoot out from them that look like different periods of time. So is there any evidence? Because, you know, a lot of people go, well, you know, it's hypothetical because we always say, you know, like, well, recombination rates, you know, they're higher in Africans. So that's probably why we got evidence from that one. Here's a couple studies that show that there's different hotspots and that African populations have more recombination hotspots. And that given that recombination rates vary between species and even individuals, it is uh, it is a it is possible that hotspots could also differ among ethnically different populations, including Africans. Indeed, the identification of haplogroups and genes associated with recombination rates could occur at different frequencies in HapMat populations, which raises the possibility that populations-specific genetic variants may in, uh, influence recombination rates. So yeah, we got evidence from there. We also have evidence that there's overall point mutations are faster in Africans. Then we obviously have the fixation rate would be higher because of smaller populations. And then we, we don't just have that evidence. We literally have evidence in pedigree studies that show, guess what? people do mutate at different rates. This was, goes all the way back to two different studies back in Parsons in 1997 and 1998, who actually showed that the Amish people mutate at a slower rate than the rest of other people. And he took a bunch of different Amish families from um, around America and tested them and found that they mutate 14% slower than other people that were tested in the same study. So you go, hmm, if they can mutate slower, then obviously Jensen is making a prediction that they could mutate faster. And then, but that's not it. This study was also, another study was also done looking at a particular family in a region that was, uh, that showed a bunch of different families of the same descent in one isolated region, and they mutated 7% slower than the other Europeans that were around them. So yes, if even different people groups can mutate at different rates. And this is one of the reasons that they have different phylogenetic charts, because think about it. If you throw a bunch of cats together, and we say all cats go back to a single common ancestor, then how can these cats all have different phylogenetic trees? How come some look older than other ones? We answer that easily through generation times. Because some have high generation times, others have low generation times. So it builds a different phylogenetic chart because they believe that everything mutates at the same rate. There's a study that uh, Donnie and I did uh, on that particular subject. 
And you guys can find it by typing in the invalidation of the molecular clock neutral theory. But we have traced animals all the way back. Wolves go back to a single common ancestor. So we know that they're all related. We can do the same thing with humans, chimpanzees, gorillas, and orangutan. Guess what? They're, they would be constructed a phylogenetic chart like this. But we know this chart isn't true because there's no way it actually could be true because we all came out of a bottleneck. And if a bottleneck is true, which we know it is, and they admit now today that it is true, then there is no possible way that they could ever build this chart based on what we know in the mitochondria or the Y chromosome because a bottleneck resets genetic diversity. So they can never actually prove genetic relation. So why does one look older than the next? Again, it comes down to the orangutan or the pongo only having a generation time of 11 years. So a gorilla and a chimp is going to look twice as young as they are because they have had half the generation time living and then a human an extra 10 years on top of it. So humans going to look the youngest in any phylogenetic chart because they have the highest amount of generation time, which means there hasn't been that many generations alive to pass on that many mutations. So therefore, we would have the least amount of mutations. So therefore, it's always going to be constructed different on each different person, on different groups of people. And it's all dependent on situation, not time. It's like how, where did they live? Was there, were they hypermutating? Were they, were they isolated in smaller groups? Were they expanding in groups? Did they live in cold regions? Did they live in warm regions? And knowing this makes it really important because when we're looking at, let's say, flightless birds, these are all Southern hemisphere birds, which means they all live down South. So when they got off the ark, none of them went North. We would expect that in our model because it's freezing cold. Everything that is, that's going to do really good and try to survive is going to go south in Australia, in Africa, where they could try to stay warm. Humans didn't do it because they were inherited lands that they couldn't go to, right? Ham inherited the south, so other people weren't allowed to go in Africa. So they, they went into other regions, but animals didn't know any better. They just went where they could survive. So in this, uh, we get um, a phylogenetic chart that's built off of the assumption of evolution being true, then flightless birds would match the nearest landmass to them because they would have walked from the landmass onto an island and then been isolated. So that's their assumption based on evolution being true. We would say that no, animals lose the ability to flight. There's also land bridges. So these two examples are going to build, refute the phylogenetic chart. Guess what? In fact, that is exactly what happened. They built the phylogenetic chart based on common ancestry being true and that the local land mass animal is going to be the one that's the closest on the island. And look at that. It was a real surprise that the elephant bird was more closely related to kiwis. It was a completely unexpected. They're com they're, no matter which animal you look at on that chart, it is completely contradictory to the chart that they made. None of those birds actually match that phylogenetic chart of ancestry. Matter of fact, the exact opposite is true. You look at what they related and you put at the end of the tips of those branches and the exact opposite is true. And that brings us to our next prediction, which is a novel prediction uh, by us here at Team Standing for Truth. Donnie and I were looking here at the phenotypic diversity of people in the world. Now, remember, uh, we would say that there was a equal distance between all people because all people are the same age, meaning all people group formed from that group of people that dispersed from the Tower of Babel. 
not very long ago. Evolution would predict, no, people, Africans were alive in Africa, stuck there for hundreds of uh, thousands of years or 150,000 years at least. And then they later, Europeans came and then Asians branched off. So that would make a hierarchy with um, Europeans and Asians being more similar and more distant to Africans with a hierarchical pattern of Africans looking far more similar than either of them. So phenotypic diversity or phenotypes are the observable measurements and characteristics. You can measure the, the, the face and, and uh, any characteristic that we want and then compare them to something. So that's what a phenotype is, just so you guys know, because we're about to get into this pretty deep right now. So we would say that Ham, Shim, and Japheth uh, broke off from each other and they started diversifying in phenotypic diversity at equal times. So if we were to look at something phenotypically, we would see... Um, no hierarchical patterns. We would see a genetic similarity and phenotypic diversity about the same. Evolution wouldn't do that, right? Evolutionary model would predict that humans arose out of Africa and they have a problem with this, right? Because they assume that because Africans have the highest amount of genetic diversity, they're the oldest. Therefore, they would have the highest amount of phenotypic diversity to match this genetic diversity. However, this isn't the case. So they wrote, it is the key challenge of human genetics to figure out this paradox. So when we looked and we compared the different people groups and we split them down the middle and we start comparing, we find equal phenotypic diversity between everyone. Now, that's very unique and very unexpected for the evolutionary thing. That's why it's a it's a it's a uh, paradox. It's a confusing thing that they're having to go. What can we do about this? There are differences between every what they would like to call race of people. All right. There's but this is where the fixation index comes in. You can take the most diverse group of people and they have the phenotypic uh, diversity that's exactly the same in wild animals today. And they also are very similar looking. So that brings us to like, wait a minute, if these animals lived over great vast amounts of time, how come they are so close to phenotypic diversity? What's going on there? And we're going to get into that. But first, let's compare human beings, okay? So I want you to look at the human gorilla, chimpanzee, pongo, and then the human, right? So um, look at the phenotypic diversity. So uh, you can see the humans are very, very different, very high amounts of phenotypic diversity in human beings, but not in the animal kingdom. So what's going on here? These species are all related to one another, right? So supposedly these, these have existed for millions of years longer than human beings, but yet they have less phenotypic diversity. That's not expected. So again, look at humans in comparison. We have the lowest amount of genetic diversity out of all these animals, but yet the highest amount of phenotypic diversity. This tells us that we're not related to them at all. The common ancestor between humans and chimps would have carried the genetic diversity capable of giving them both chimps and humans high phenotypic diversity capabilities. Yet they want us to believe that humans inherited it, but the chimpanzees didn't inherit that same phenotypic diversity. Why not? That makes no sense at all. They We literally split. We would share the same amount of genetics that would allow diversity. So we can see that, that the phenotypic diversity is the same between all of these different species, including humans, right? So what does that tell us? It tells us many important things. One, that all human groups must be the same age as their phenotypic diversity is the same between all people groups. Two, it tells us that phenotypic diversity between animal species is also the same, meaning that we all went through a recent bottlenecks and animals species formed soon after that and not in the deep past, right? 
because deep time obviously would be letting us know that a lot of um, phenotypic diversity would occur over millions of years. It also tells us that humans have the same phenotypic diversities between Asians, Caucasians, Africans. And this is what we would expect with the uh, biblical account of creation, uh, um, uh, biblical flood, I'm sorry. And if hundreds of thousands of years had actually passed, life would be far more phenotypically diverse in some species, but not in others that they're related to, right? There is no phenotypic hierarchy either, right? So we look at these, we go, look, tigers, all of them can interbreed, all are related, very low phenotypic diversity. You would look at one and be like, I can't even tell the difference between a Bengal tiger and a Siberian tiger. If I was in the wild, it would take a specialist. It would take a, uh, somebody that knows the species to identify that. And same with the orangutan. But uh, humans, very, very different, very diverse. We line up the animals. We can actually see the same thing. And then we go, uh, but look at just Africans. Look at how different, right? We can see that the diversity within Africans is still really, really diverse. It's the same thing no matter where we look in different people groups today. And these are people groups from all around the world. We can see massive phenotypic differences looking at the skulls. Very, very unique, very different than the animal kingdom. And again, more Africans. That was supposed to be showed earlier. Phenotypic diversity off the charts, but yet the same between every single one of us. So keep in mind, those images do not even include people groups that have died out in the past, like Denisovan, Neanderthal, Erectus, Heidelbergensis, which also show even more phenotypic diversity which would be expected in the past, right? We get closer to Noah, higher amounts of genetic diversity, more diversity will be seen as time goes on, get lost, right? So yet, and this is what we see. I showed this because it looks pretty funny. Look at all the diversity we have from dog breeds today, okay? Why is this? What's going on here? Dog breeds are something that hide the genetic diversity within them, okay? We know that. So we're gonna get into that in just a minute. But first, this is what we would see. If, if evolution was true, we would find the highest genetic phenotypic diversity in African people today. And that phenotypic diversity would be hugely uncorrelated. And then we get into the Europeans, which would be uh, more close to the Asians, right? That's, that's what we would see in phenotypic diversity. So instead, what do we see? We see the exact equal proportions between all groups of people, exactly what we would expect in a biblical model. But an evolutionary model has us going bottleneck to bottleneck to bottleneck to bottleneck. Each one of these bottlenecks would be lowering genetic diversity every single time we go into one because you only get a handful of people surviving each one. So we would, if we looked into the fossil record in the past, we should see massive phenotypic differences between all these supposed human ancestors. And the phenotype, because if we see that with people groups today, which would be at the end of the spectrum, we would find that they, the phenotypic differences would be minimal in what people would be able to produce today. But instead, we see the opposite. We see massive amounts of phenotypic differences looking at the populations. And we look over at people groups in the past, and we don't we don't see that in the fossil record. We go, oh, man, there's not really much going on there. Why? If they live for hundreds of thousands of years and why, where are the horses? Where are the bodies? Where are all the uh, the differences? I think our model makes far more sense with what we see when it comes to this phenotypic difference. So again, when we're looking over here at this one, we see that if all three major groups of people formed soon after the flood, sometime after Babel, then all of these uh, all of this finally makes sense, and they have this hierarchical pattern that should be there 
and this is where the paradox came from and why they really came with like, well, people look so different. Let's compare them to the closest looking animal. That must have been what happened. Asians, you know, that's where the uh, Pongo live. They're in, over there in Asia. So they must have come from that that ancestral group of primates. And then what do we know? Well, we know from genotypic studies now, race is a made up thing. There's, there's the genetic similarity between all people is extremely close. We're not related to these animals whatsoever. And then comes the storytelling from them. That's like, well, you know, what happened is we got this, these chimps, right? These primate ancestors and they had full body fur. The chimpanzees kept theirs and we started to lose their ours. Kind of like there's chimps that lost their fur today. And eventually what's going to happen is they're going to evolve melanin and then they're going to evolve this subcutaneous layer of fat that's going to surround their body. And then there's they're going to get goosebumps because it'll help keep them warm. They'll evolve all eyebrows and then they'll evolve the ability to grow long hair on the tops of their heads. And then they'll grow really evolve a thick epidermis skin and then thermal regulating genes all of these requirements are needed also so that we can start wearing fur again like our ancient ancestors because that makes total sense right and yeah these things are all true only humans have these these features about them if you want the list it's right there and just remember guys that you there's not a lot of time because the amount of time it takes only two mutations to reach fixation beneficial mutations is 200 million years so they have to account for all of these things literally to evolve in the time it took to split, which is 6 million years, but it, only two mutations takes that long. So where is the time for evolution to evolve all of those things? We're not even going to get into the, uh, how long a sexual organ uh, would take to evolve. That's going to be far more than two mutations. So <laughs> it gets more ridiculous. The more of the story you look at it. So another way we can validate that deep time is not choosing this uh, phenotypic diversity is by looking at man made current animals and breeds, right? Let's use modern created dog breeds as an example. They are far outside the phenotypic diversity compared to the wild counterparts, right? Look at their faces, either completely fat, uh, smashed flat, really long. Some of them can't even breathe. They have all kinds of diversity within that group because we've we've manipulated their genetics so we can see how much we can change their genetics around breeding has shown that it has a hidden reservoir inside this genetic uh capability but wild animals don't show much diversity if if deep time was really really true wouldn't we see the story that they that they admit to because if we look they say that the wolf has lived almost one million years well wait a minute that story reminds me of something. It reminds me of the story of where they said the Pachycetus evolved into an aquatic species in the same amount of time. Wait a minute. That's a huge amount of phenotypic differences. But yet they want us to believe that the wolf had that same amount of time diverse and spread around the world. And yet almost no phenotypic differences whatsoever. Wait a minute. The story doesn't match what the science is telling us. Why? Because the, the story they're telling us is a lie. It's stupid. It doesn't make any sense. Adam Segwitz said the reason why evolution, uh, uh, the theory of evolution was created from the first to the last is the uh, dish of rank materialism cleverly cooked up. And why it is, why is it done? For no other reason, I am sure, except for the independent of a creator. People know that they invented this. They know that if you push evolution, naturalism, that you there is no need for a god. That's the reason they have to push this nonsense because it's, it just goes against Occam, Occam's razor, right? In science, the authority of a thousand opinions is not 
uh, worth as much as one tiny spark of reason in an individual man. So don't ever let people tell you, well, the majority believe it. Are they all wrong? Who cares what they think? Think for yourself. Question everything. That's what science is about. Stop just accepting what everyone is like. Oh, well, well, you know, you're the, the scientist told me it's true. Well, I'm just going to believe them. That's what they told me in school. Okay, well, you know, they're going to tell you a lot of things. You know, if you lived a thousand years ago, you'd believe the earth is flat too. So consistent, consistent, um, <laughs> uh, consensus then as well. Are you going to go with that same argument? Doesn't make much sense. How about evolution? They say linear line going up through time. We say, wait a minute, mutations are breaking us down. We see the exact opposite. We say created genetic diversity. We see creation in animal species, right? But Again, beneficial mutations have to override negative mutations for it to be true. So when we're looking at uh, our model, which would say genetic entropy, we're looking at damage in the genome, right? Kimura came along and he was like, hmm, let's see what's going on. How much selection would actually be needed for going on? And what we see is that Kimura only assumed that beneficial mutations could completely override things through simulations. He didn't actually know. So what we actually found out later is um, most of the mutations that are building up are actually taking place within this distribution area where they can't be selected for. So this is uh, another one. I think uh, I was going to cover going through genetic entropy for a minute. Um, it might take too long, so I'll just skim through it because you guys kind of know a little bit about it. But as you guys know, we have uh, multiple mutations building up that are non-selectable, non-seeable, but yet we haven't reached mutation saturation. We see that um, problems are arising, diseases are increasing. Uh, we don't see what they expected to see. And when we look for these beneficial mutations, they, they just infer that some could happen, but there's not enough, guys. There just really isn't. The great majority of them, 99% are harmful in some way, shape, or form. And when we look at things like in Africa, we go, ooh, look at that. There's malaria. Malaria is taking place. And this isn't, isn't good. I mean, 300,000 babies are born with sickle cell, and 50 to 90% will die before their fifth birthday. So yeah, it's true. They don't get malaria, but they're dying from this mutation anyway. So it's, it's helping, but it's like, you know, hurting yourself just so it could happen. It just so it can help a little bit. It's like evolution is just trying to make you survive basically, but <laughs> that's all that's happening is barely any survival. So we see a buildup of these new mutations every single generation and it's based on the age of the father. And now we're starting to really learn that, wait a minute, most of these silent mutations are harmful. They're not neutral. And that is unexpected at a point of where they say that 75% of synonymous, which they always thought synonymous mutations don't have any effect on, on, uh, on something at all, are actually harmful. That was really, really surprising. And what we know now is that these random mutations, they even admit that they're not leading to the type of evolution that they need it to. In the, in the in the textbooks because remember they can say evolution can do anything it can go left it can go right it can go up it can go down well that's not what the textbooks show the textbooks show a linear form of evolution so that's what they have to prove don't ever let them tell you otherwise because it's just absolutely ridiculous and uh too long to go over some of these <laughs> and most of the things that they actually thought were beneficial mutations are more epigenetically regulated than anything else and epigenetics doesn't even change the gene and mutations are what change the gene and uh, if it doesn't change the gene, there's no evolution. So uh, epigenetics is a really good subject. It's a it's a fun one. It really shows the limit for what we what we thought evolution really have. Then we have the waiting time problem, where um, 
again, another huge subject where there's just not enough time for evolution to be true when we go through the simulation of DNA changes required based on uh, mutations, beneficial mutations, rising and reaching fixation. It's just not there. So we show that the waiting time problem is uh, very severe when one or more mutations is required to establish any new function. And evolution needs new function everywhere you look. If you're going to turn something into the ability to fly in multiple different organisms in every single different environment, you're going to need massive amounts of new functions to get there. So we're able to actually predict that there's the loss of function and that loss of function, we're able to say, hmm, if we're losing chromosomes over time from chromosome fusions, we can make testable predictions on that. And therefore we can actually trace back lineages based on where animals migrated to, how that far, how much farther they got away from the arc and then trace those back to more of a chromosome count. And therefore we, it, it, it performs in the function of showing us that the biblical model of ancestry is more true and giving us a indicator of what animals were probably on the ark rather than their counterpart species that later came about. And we can do that by tracing, uh, uh chromosome fusions that's, uh, in the younger creation model. And then, um, Dr. John Sanford came out and said that he hypothesized that the humans will go extinct after 350 generations. And as you know, from the Y chromosome, we're about at 150 right now. So that puts a time limit on humans and pretty much all life in general, but that doesn't, uh, uh, tell us anything except for more testable predictions. And again, Mendel's accountant is the simulator that was run for this. And a lot of people don't like Mendel's accountant that are atheists because it completely destroys their paradigm of evolution being true. And they say, who cares about Mendel's accountant? Well, I'll tell you who cares about it. The National Institute of Health, the NIH, the largest health organization on earth. They don't use the evolutionary model. They use the young earth creation model because it is the true model. It doesn't care about the fight that we're having between creation and evolution. It only cares about what works. And if evolution worked, they would be using an evolutionary model of, of prediction. And it doesn't. It uses ours because ours is what's true. It's what we see. It's what we can test. It's what we observe. And, and it's the one we're making testable predictions on. So why are they choosing the Young Earth creation model if it's wrong? If they say, oh, it's garbage. Oh, really? Oh, it's garbage. Is it? They're using it with success and they don't care about the, the debate going on. So that's destructive. And the final conclusions is beneficial mutations can't keep up with the deleterious ones. They're not strong enough to override it. And if they are strong enough to override it, it actually makes things worse because it speeds up the, the, uh, the negative ones, which I forgot to show you the slide on. Uh, but it's okay, everyone. I'll, I'll give you the uh, <laughs> the books after that. And as a reminder, we are going to be having the special creation handbook. Uh, being it's being worked on right now, and it got updated again this morning. But it will be ready in like literally probably two days. So be ready for that one if you want more information on genetic entropy and what we just talked about. And that book will be ready to go. If you bought it today, so be it. The interior is ready. But if you wait two days, you'll get the newest up-to-date model with the new cover and everything ready to go. That brings us to the next one. Hmm. Genome studies confirm creation or do the genome st uh, studies force evolution into early retirement, right? Are they a retro retrofitting type of thing? Because uh, do we have genetic boundaries or are these genetic relations that they're talking about by looking at particular uh, areas of the genome and protein coding region genes? Is that, is that showing us? Well, that's what the Rockefeller University study of 2019 actually showed us is that it showed us that there were clear genetic boundaries and 
that you can trace these things back to a bottleneck and there's no species in between them at all. That was exactly the opposite of what they expected. They expected a hierarchical pattern going back to a universal common ancestor. Instead, they found uh, linear lines of, of a separate ancestry coming out of a bottleneck. Humans, fish, chimpanzees, gorillas, all of them at the same time coming out of the same bottleneck. All of the things that they said, no, 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 we converge, we converge, we converge. No evidence for any of it. And the evidence they said was so conclusive uh, was so surprising that they fought against it. That's right. They had to, they had to tell themselves like, Whoa, what's going on here? So again, all animals, the same age. That's right. They were the same age. 90% of all life, genetically speaking is the same age. And that means 10% of all life that was in the past went into a bottleneck and boom, 90%. Now that we all have came from that 10% that was on the arc. Guess what? Evolution did not predict exactly that. And yes, that's right. The population included anchovies too. That's right. Fish went through the bottleneck. So they can't say, ah, the bottleneck was just some, you know, random thing that was uh, for land life, or maybe it was just a volcano that wiped out some things. Oh no, global, completely global. And this debunked what they know about evolution of species. That's right. So they've tried to say they had to go back and write on the top of that study. No, this doesn't debunk evolution. It confirms it. But guess what? It doesn't do that at all. It completely destroys their theory. And if you want even more on that, make sure to watch the video called Genetic Boundaries on this channel. Go back. I recommend it. It's very, very powerful because what we see are living species going back in a single line of ancestor to exactly the same species of the family, <laughs> right? And then a branching out from that, exactly what the biblical model predicted. That's why phylogeny has to use cladistics as play words and games, and all they use is assumptions, right? They have to use cladistics as their word salad game to prove relation now. Because that's the only way they can do it, right? They've, they've lost everything. So now they have to use semantics. They have to go, well, well you know, uh, we're related to apes because we are apes. We named ourselves that. We, so now we can say that we are apes. Oh, okay. So here's the assumptions that are based on cladistics. They require assumptions based on it. Carl Linnaeus, he based groupings on similarities of traits, right? But Darwin classified these based on the assumptions of ancestry. That's the difference. The animals stayed the same, but the lenses they used to interpret it, or interpret it have changed because of the classification systems and the assumption of evolution being true. What do we see? Carl Linnaeus was in many ways, um, none of the least of which was how he classified humans. He named humans Homo sapiens and placed them in the genus Homo. Although Linnaeus believed that humans were a specially designed God's creation, he plotted them like he would any other animal. So Linnaeus did not recognize humans alongside of apes with any idea of evolutionary link at all. He did this. Uh, he did this with the same reasoning he used to categorize all life, which is similarities that he identified with species. That is it. It doesn't mean that it's true. It doesn't mean that evolution is true. It's just like, oh, you have a hand and an arm that can do this. You have a face that's forward. You don't have a tail. You're an ape. Close enough. So therefore, people go, oh, I guess I'm an ape. Oh, I'm going to classify that way. I might as well be an ape, right? Here is the definition of a human. It's a it's a human being distinguished from an animal. I'm sorry to tell you guys. That's just the way that it's going to have to be for you. A succession of even very similar forms doesn't demand common descent. It could, in this case it does, instead point to a common designer. These guys, the engineers at Chevy. Intelligent agents are free to reuse things however they want. Just like I use the same password, Fluffy Bunny 123 for everything I do online. So the question remains open, is homology due to common design or common descent? Because the argument was so central to Darwin's case, 
His followers eliminated the question by simply redefining the word from simple similarity to meaning similarity due to common ancestry. They baked Darwinism into the definition of the word. Homology now typically means similarity due to common ancestry. It's a clever way to end an argument if you can get away with it, but for anybody paying attention, it's a baldly circular one. Common ancestry because common ancestry. We got a flag on the play, circular reasoning, illegal use of logic, five-yard penalty, repeat the fourth grade. Oh, come on, no serious biologist could possibly make that mistake. Nobody defines homology that way and then uses it as evidence for evolution. Come on, people couldn't possibly be that. No. The circular argumentation is still regularly used in high school, even college-level textbooks, and many a YouTube video. The surprising thing is that many otherwise very smart people didn't realize this. However, more and more people are seeing the problem for what it is. That brings us to our next one, which is, of course, the evolutionary bottleneck versus creation bottleneck, right? We would have to say that um, evolution tells us that there have been multiple bottlenecks through uh, many eons of time and that these small breeding inbreeding populations have existed. The young earth creation model says, no, God told us to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, which one of these is true? Because people love to mock us. They go, ah, you guys are so ridiculous. You believe that all the animals were inbreeding and then all of a sudden they could populate the world. That's stupid. It, it's un, it's unseen. Humans can't inbreed without genetic problems. Oh, really? Okay. Well, yes, that is true today. But what? who really has the problem here? Is the problem really a small group of people filling up the uh, earth from a small population really quickly in one generation? Or is this hypothetical scenario of uh, populations going into a bottleneck and then living in small populations over long periods of time, which one makes more sense? You can't be inbreeding in small populations without massive amounts of health problems. Ours doesn't have that because you get an extensive growth of populations where mutations aren't going to be a problem because eventually there's going to be cousins and then cousins and then third cousins, and it's not going to be a big issue. It's when you're in these smaller populations that evolution says they existed in over tens of thousands of years. That's the actual inbreeding problem. So I find it ironic that they say we have an inbreeding problem when they have the biggest inbreeding problem that there is. We have mutations building up from a perfect genome over a couple thousand years, a bottleneck, and then an explosion of people yet again. What happens in the animal kingdom? Can we prove that this scenario where they're mocking us again is true? Absolutely. How about when they dropped off wild mouflon sheep and they, on an island and they left them there? There were only um, a, a single pair of them. They can only inbreed. What happened? Uh-oh. Exactly the opposite of what evolution predicted could happen from two animals getting off the ark and filling up the world. They did just fine. They actually got to a population of 600 and there was no problem at all. The same thing with deer. They dropped off deer, five, five whitetail. I think only two of them, um, only, oh no, there was only a single male. Boom, they filled up. No problem with inbreeding at all. They filled up the entire area. How about the, um, in Catalina, when they dropped off buffalo, they dropped off like um, a handful of buffalo, like 14 of them or something on this island. For a movie, yeah, they dropped off 14 of them and uh, they exploded to 600 of them. They were like, oh my gosh, they lowered them down to 150 because they were like, oh man, this <laughs> that that's can maintainable. We can't maintain 600 of them. They actually had to try to slow down the population growth. There is no problem with the creation model at all of putting in genetic diversity and then allowing animals to get off the ark and populate the world. There isn't. It's same thing with human beings. Matter of fact, we know what Eve's sequence is. And you can read this by Dr. John Sanford um, when he uh, 
uh, Andrew Snelling published this with him, and you can go and read that Eve sequence has already been done. We already know what her genome looked like. And because we base everything on function, it's much easier to say. And then we have the creation, which makes more sense. We have the story of evolution, which doesn't make genetic sense. Uh, it doesn't make inbreeding sense. It's, it doesn't make any sense, really. Um, uh, everything should be different uh, if evolution was true. But I digress. We we see what's what creation sees. And we know that they're not objective when it comes to this because they have a prior commitment of materialism. They cannot allow a divine foot in the door in science because the second they start allowing this thing, this type of thing to be taught, evolution is through. And they, they don't want that. They have another thing. How about Darwin? Let's go back to him real quick. He predicted, based on evolution being true, that Darwinian finches would produce one new species every 3,000 years based on deep time, based on what he knew. Well, guess what? The exact opposite happened. They found that in two generations, literally a new species can form. That is exactly the opposite of what he of what he thought would ever be found to be true. That's way too fast. So literally in 3.3 years, there's a new species of finch. So when we go over evolution says slow, creation says fast, what do we see? We see animals evolving way faster than they ever thought, ever predicted. And more, and this, this is observable data. This isn't anything we just don't know. We can go down the list of different things that we know. New species are evolving in two generations. That is way too quick for evolution, but it explains why we have so many different species alive today. If speciation can happen in just two generations, it's no big deal at all, right? How about, how about people go, oh, we lost wisdom teeth. That's proving that uh, evolution is true, right? I mean, uh, it's, 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 it shows that we're evolving to the next stage. It's like, wait a minute, we're losing information. The jaws of people are actually shrinking. And we know that they're shrinking because uh, the, the people in the wild today are uh, easily testable. And we can take them and we can say, look at the Australian aboriginals. Let's see what happens when we take them. We put them on a modern diet. The very next generation are showing that their teeth don't fit in their mouth and they are no longer having wisdom teeth. That is not deep time evolution. That is the genome protecting the body because it's designed to know how to do so. It knows if it grows wisdom teeth with already a shrinking mouth with teeth that don't fit, you're going to have horrible problems. We see this exact same thing in elephants today. Because if we look at the Moa Zimbabwe um, civil war that arose, elephants were being mass slaughtered for their tusks. And remember, elephants have a generation time, like humans, very high, one of the slowest reproducing mammals on earth. And within just two generations, 98% of all female elephants never develop tusk. How? How do they know to do this? Or are they like thinking, wait a minute, if I don't grow my tusks, maybe they'll stop killing me. No, the design network kicked in that was like, you're being killed for this reason. It's almost like it was designed, wasn't it? To like protect the animal from being killed. And you're like, well, that's really good. That proves evolution. That's a very good mutation. Oh, really? Because it's lethal when the mutation gets into males. And males are dying left and right because when they get the mutation, they die. So only females can exist with the benefit. The males die immediately. So when we look at aboriginals, people, guess what? They lived, when they migrated in Australia, it was extremely hot there, right? And so it was so hot that their body adapted to this heat extremely fast. The central Australian aborigines actually have the ability to withstand massive amounts of temperature. Their body stays 50% cooler than you and me, naturally all because of a gene variant that they got that isn't in other even aboriginals that don't live there. And that happened very, very quickly. But yet they want to tell us the aboriginals have been there for 65,000 years. Well, if that was the case, then guess what? 
humans would be a different species, wouldn't they? Because if you, if animals are evolving into different species within literally a couple generations, how can you isolate a group of humans in an area for 65,000 years and then come along later and then reproduce with them? It would be physically impossible because of all the gene conversions and all the other uh, problems that would arise from isolation from that amount of time. The only way to explain the ability to assimilate and to breed with aboriginals is the young earth creation timeline. So that is it. How about um, uh, the Dairy Queen? This is showing us that. When we look at Vikings in the past, we know how tall they were because we know when they lived and when they were buried and who they were. And literally 1,000 years ago, they were a different height. They weren't very tall people. But yet, when we look at Denmark, Norway, Sweden, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the Netherlands, all of them have the same gene variant for height, which makes them extremely tall. That means that gene variant rose within I'm sorry, arose within literally like 100 generations <laughs> and spread through all the people. How about snakes? They're losing their white white stripes. Why? Because when pollution gets into their environment, melanin absorbs toxins. So when um, when it, when a toxin dumps into the ocean, literally in the lifespan of that snake, they start losing their stripes so that the melanin can, can absorb the toxins, and their and their offspring are born without stripes, and they never get the stripes back again. So again, we see loss of information. We see um, something that was already there being lost. And then we go over to islands and we see that, um, beetles, uh, are losing their ability to fly because what happens is when they, when they come on, on a, like, let's say debris brings them to an ocean and then they get off and they are out on a new Island, the wind picks them off and blows them back into the ocean and they end up dying. So what happens is natural selection goes, Hmm, What's going on here? Why these things are dying? So it's again, they're not saying like they're not choosing to not fly. They're just using that ability if they have it. So what happens is the olfactory sensors in their nose now don't allow them to smell flowers far away. So they don't want to fly. So now they just walk around everywhere. And after just a few generations, they are now not able to fly at all because there was no need for it because they lost that ability to smell think about that that is insane right so we're talking about built-in design right you guys might like that uh, slide but i gotta move on because i'm running out of time plants same thing rapid 10 to 100 years they're adapting very very fast environments um Mutations are not random. They, it seems like they're they're piling up exactly where they were they were supposed to be to help the species, like they were built in designed. It took 100 years for the insects to adopt to eating it again. This is the cherry plum tree. Um, uh, let's play it real quick. This is the black cherry, an American tree species that has spread invasively in Western Europe over the past century. And for a long time, people thought that this was because it doesn't have any native natural enemies. But when you look at herbarium records over the past century, you see that more and more insects have started feeding on the black cherry. And actually, nowadays, we found that there are more different species of insects eating from this tree than from the native bird cherry. We also found that some specialized insects have evolved, have changed genetically to adapt to this new food source. And we think that over time, this may help to control the invasive character of the black cherry. You can read all about this research in our latest publication in the journal PRJ. So what's going on? 
again, we have a, a, a tree species that never existed in a place being uh, moved in. And now all of a sudden it's growing and the insects are adapting to eating it. Really good, right? Well, guess what? When they removed the trees, the insects weren't able to adapt to living back at the environment that they once lived in and able to eat from. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? The very own food source that was their main one is now... Uh, they're unable to eat it because they lost that genetic information. Very similar to the E. coli experiment with Linsky, right? They moved into a special environment, they adapted to it. And then when they tried to move them back to the original, they couldn't live there anymore. They lost genetic information. Exactly what our model says. We say the same thing in um, uh, butterflies. And uh, we see the same thing in deer. We see the same thing in toads. We see the same thing in animals. We look everywhere, Gupper, guppies, lizards, mosquitoes, mice. Evolution is happening extremely fast, you see? But this adaptation, they've stolen the word adaptation or any change to mean evolution, right? So therefore, if anything changes, oh, it's proof of evolution. No, it's not. Every one of these examples is literally contrary to what they thought and predicted, right? So what do we see? The genetic variance, uh, fitness, uh, indicates rapid uh, contemporary adaptive radiation uh, of evolution in wild animals. Are there are any of these examples proof, though, that any of these other organisms are related in the past? So does that prove now that that um, these uh, you know flightless insects now were related to something else? How about fish? Right, freshwater fish are genetically adapted from ocean dwelling. That's weird, right? In just 120 years? Oh, man. Yeah, even faster than that if you actually read the data. How about mm, birds evolved virtually overnight to keep up with invasive prey? Wait a minute. That's too fast. How about the uh, cliff swallows? Everyone's been driving down the freeway probably at some point and seeing these birds living in freeways. And yet, that they've only started doing this recently. And as they've done this, they have actually shortened their wingspan because larger wingspans actually are required for them to... Um, uh, glide at a different rate. They uh, a smaller wing uh, is more aerodynamic and allows them to turn quicker. But within just a few generations, what do we see? These birds have adapted to living under freeway overpasses really just that quickly. That's way too fast for evolution to be true. And how many bird families are there? Two hundred forty-nine. That would so to me, that's how many would have been on the ark. And then uh, the amount of species today. How about cat breeds? Wild cats, there's not very many of, but in breeds, there's tons of them. So we see the genetic diversity going on inside of wild anim uh, wild animals, and we, we see the limit to what evolution would be able to produce, and it's not that much, guys. So how about rapid evolution in kinds? Camels and llamas, so different and living on different continents, yet able to breed together and produce young. Examples abound of species that can be bred together. Zebras with horses. Tigers with lions. Potatoes with hot peppers and so on. This amazes biologists. Based on modern rates of change, new species should quickly lose their ability to interbreed with other species. So, modern species that interbreed must have formed recently and rapidly. It's amazing that camels and llamas, though separated by oceans and thousands of miles, came from the same parents in relatively recent times. Then we could understand how a single pair of cats could produce all known cats. 
Today, crossbreeding between domestic cats and wild cats, between cougars and leopards, between lions and tigers, indicate that all modern cat species are the same created kind. The original cat kind carried all the information necessary to build the variety of cats we see today. So how could such major changes have arisen so rapidly? This is a mystery to biologists. Squids are shrinking. Birds are migrating. Lizards are getting blown away by hurricanes. The signs are everywhere. Animals are changing, but few people expected it to happen so fast. About 2,500 miles away, a series of marine heat waves swept through the Gulf of California, warming the surface temperature of the water and impacting various species, including the Humboldt squid. Humboldt squid are also known as jumbo squid because they grow so large. They can be three, four, five, even six feet in length. Fishers in the Gulf of California were the first people to notice that something had changed when they stopped catching the Humboldt squid. When the scientists arrived to study this situation, they found that in fact the Humboldt squid were still there and in some places more plentiful than before. What had changed was their lifestyle and their body. These were not immature or juvenile squid. They were Humboldt squid at full size, reproducing and carrying out their lives in half the time they used to. Dr. William Gilly and his team measured the squid they caught and found a reduction of 50% or more in their body size in response to the stress of the higher water temperatures. This adaptation is known as plasticity. Plasticity is already built into the genome of a species. It's already there. From the warm waters of Mexico, we travel to the frigid north to study another example of plasticity, behavioral plasticity, in the feeding patterns of this Arctic bird. I think we're all familiar with that iconic climate change image of the polar bear stranded on a shrinking iceberg. But if you could look beyond the bear to the edge of the ice, you might catch a glimpse of a tiny seabird called the little auk or dovekey. Dovekeys feed along the edge of the ice flows where there are, are a lot of plankton. And that has been their strategy for thousands of years. It worked just fine until the ice flows began to shrink and retreat farther and farther from the islands where the dovekeys breed. And you can imagine, as that ice gets farther and farther away, the dovekeys have longer and longer to travel to reach a place where they can get food for their offspring. And they have long been predicted to be an early casualty of climate change. French scientist David Grimley and his team placed transmitters on the birds and wondered how long they would need to fly to their usual plankton meal, which was now far away at the edge of the retreating ice. So when they gathered around to collect the first batch of data from their transmitters, they were astounded because instead of flying an hour, the dovekeys had been in the air for less than four minutes. David and his team realized that the dovekeys had found a new food source right on their very doorstep at the mouth of the fjord, where the milky blue meltwater from island glaciers was slamming into the dark, cold currents of the Arctic Ocean and creating this place of plenty for the dovekeys to feed upon the stunned plankton. The dovekeys continue to thrive by being flexible enough as a species to switch up their traditional feeding patterns and adapt quickly to a changing environment. 
plants and animals all over the world adapting their behavior, sometimes changing their bodies, sometimes even evolving in response to climate change. We can take inspiration from plants and animals in terms of our own response to the crisis. After all, if a tiny lizard can evolve in response to climate change, then it stands to reason we can change some of the behaviors that are bringing it about. Just so many examples, time and time again, of this rapid adaptation that was never predicted by evolution. And so we've run out of time, I guess. So I've, I've ha I'm going to have to skip uh, junk DNA, mutation, saturation, uh, longevity, uh, genetic potential, uh, vestigial organs, leftover remnants. We're going to have to stop on chromosome two fusion, uh, races. Um, but one thing that I do want to finish up is predictions. And we have three novel predictions that are going to be made right now tonight that are I'm going to break down real quick. We are going to say that ancient mummified Egyptians, uh, animals and people are going to have fewer mutations than people alive today, going back and uh, making predictive power based on the young earth creation timeline. Meaning if evolution is true, they wouldn't really have very many mutations different than us today because obviously, uh, you know, they only lived a few thousand years ago. So not a lot of mutations will be there. But in our model, it was near this is almost 4,000 years ago, right? So we're, they're going to have a lot of mutation differences from us. Another one is ERV knockout prediction. They're more beneficial than not and fewer orphan genes in Africans and the Khoisan people. And the reason why is because if we're going to make predictions based on these things, if we see uh, going backwards, uh, we're, uh, ERVs, are, we're going to say, have function. And these functions are going to be more beneficial than the detriment that they actually bring. And as far as orphan genes, we know that uh, on a study that was done with flies where we forced them into uh, reproductive isolation and we took younger species, uh, our, fly our flies, and we forced them to breed and produce offspring, they eventually lost their orphan genes. So that would mean then if uh, Nathaniel Jensen is... is is right, then what we would do is, is Africans are actually reproducing at younger rates, then therefore they should have less orphan genes within them as a human population. It only makes sense, right? Uh, the only uh, caveat with that would, would be is that the fruit fly study was done on flies that were very adolescent. Uh, I'm not sure uh, around puberty age, so I'll have to check that one out. But regardless, what that would mean is that if Africans have less orphan genes, it'll show that human beings didn't come from Africans. It would mean that we branched off with them. So it would clarify multiple things of our model. So Again, if we're wrapping this all up, we explain genetic diversity better. We explain genetic similarity better. We explain mutation rates better. We explain human origins better. We explain phenotypic diversity better, the fossil record better, bottlenecks, human migration, inbreeding, population growth, history, junk DNA, disease better, vestigial organs. We make better testable predictions. The, so when, when I see clowns like, you know, other people, atheists over here just saying, I don't see any evidence at all. I don't see anything. They're just looking through the lens of, of, of oh, I don't know what I'm doing there. It's not playing. They're just looking through the lens of what they want to already believe to be true. I recommend people reading Replacing Darwin and Traced. They're advanced books, but they're a good reflection of what the Young Earth Creation model is. I wanted to thank Discovery Science for the videos that I popped up and used, those little cartoon ones, which were fun. And now we can get into questions. <laughs> you know... Two hours ago, brother, you took one big breath and then 
just two hours straight, nonstop. Very impressive, brother. Uh, I told you, coffee does the trick, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I never have caffeine, so it's good. I needed it. I needed it. Great endurance, brother. Um, I know how it feels. A couple of weeks ago, I did an ERV presentation for just two plus hours straight, one breath, one coffee, and it's like a workout. It's a marathon. So I only uh, got through half. <laughs> right. I know. We're going to have to do a part two, guys. Uh, sometime after the conference, what we will do is a uh, Genesis Genetics part two. Um, because this was epic. Carmine says, Matt man is a top five presenter. Amen. I Ooh, agree. Um, very engaging presentation, the passion, the energy, not one moment of, uh, of bore of being boring. Uh, so much great irrefutable evidence, Matt. I know we're putting all this together in a book. Um, you also, mentioned the special creation book. Um, so yes, to the audience, that is, I would say a few days away from being uh, ready for release. It's close to 300 pages. And there we go, the expanded and updated edition. So I've got our uh, book designer, Benjamin, he does fantastic work. He does all these uh, original designs for us. Uh, he did the uh, where is it? He did the endogenous retrovirus handbook design, which I mean we love it. So he's doing a custom back cover because this book is um, I mean it's over double the size of the old version, pretty much a brand new book um, and with some novel answers in it as well to some of these challenges. And so the second Benjamin is done with the back cover, we are going to send it in for publishing and hopefully we'll be done soon. Um, so Karen, why says it's amazing how much info <laughs> gets out on his present. Amen. Amen. The key is to just talk as fast, but as clear and concise as possible. So there's, there's no way to top that performance, brother. Great job. I told uh, the audience, you know, this conference would be comprehensive. And so far uh, in just the three sessions we've done so far, we're looking at over six hours and we're just getting started. You know, the fun is just getting started, Matt. This is only day two, session three. Um so God bless. This was a, a great stuff, brother. You know, and, and I love how well-rounded it, it, it was. You know, you touched on so many different topics. Um, you know, some topics that I'm going to touch on as well in my presentation tomorrow night pertaining to, of course, ERVs, chromosome 2 fusion, so on and so forth. <laughs> I love when you pointed out how, um, you know, the, these evolutions, the critics, they're so unsophisticated. They're so sloppy in, in their responses, right? So weak in their responses. They'll typically just say, because they, they know deep down inside they don't have a sophisticated rebuttal or counter to what's being said here. So they'll say, well, I'm just going to go with the majority, right? The majority opinion argument or the consensus argument. I love how you just said, listen, okay, think for yourself. Who cares what the majority says? Okay, the majority has always been wrong for the most part. I mean, look at the majority at the time of Noah. There was eight people on the ark, Noah and his family. 
the majority were wrong. <laughs> okay. So, um, you know, I, I love how you just call them out for that. Because guys, it's 2022. It's a great time to be a biblical creationist. And to the critics, it's time to start advancing better arguments. If you think that you can provide a superior model, then do so. You know, that, that that's what we're waiting for. So this was two hours. And like you said, Matt, you know, you're just getting started. And we're definitely going to have to do a part two. So what we'll do uh, in order to make sure we wrap it up at the two and a half hour mark is we'll do a uh, power round here of audience questions. And we got some good ones. Uh, Dan from Bible Research Tools. Thank you so much. God bless you. He says, great presentation, Matt. Um, Thanks. Okay, so let's start right at the beginning, and we'll have a power round here. This should be fun. Reminder to everybody, um, we're doing two shows a day for this uh, conference week. And so after this, um, we'll probably take a break for about an hour and a half. We're going to have CJ Cox for a presentation on countering compromise. Okay, so Ken Rock asks, I have a question. If God can do everything automatically, wouldn't anything he do? be efficient as far as creation um i don't i mean yeah he would have created efficiency in everything that's why adaptation is so good but you got to remember there was a fall many generations have passed there was a bottleneck where lots of things died right so we we lose we lose some things as well so there's people that blame god one of the main reasons that people don't believe in Christianity or fall away is because of the, it's called the problem of evil. Like, I don't understand why my kid had to die. Why did God do this to me? And it's not the case. We live in a world that's fallen. Genetic entropy is real. We Disease and death and decay. Even plants and animals have turned on each other. That's the world we live in. So, yes, design was perfect. Everything was great in Eden. We messed it up. The Bible says, because of you, the earth is cursed. He didn't do it. We did. It's our consequence. Great answer. Born again, RN. Uh, good to have your brother. He's got a question for you. A couple of good questions. This is a good one, actually, uh, in, uh, I think, the introductory chapter of the new special creation book coming out. <clears throat> I touch on this because this is a great line of evidence for young earth creation. So great stuff. So he asks, based on the age of the earth, Matt, according to evolutionists, shouldn't the population of the earth be much larger? Absolutely. The population growth curve shows that humans populated at a very, very fast rate. The reasons uh, Neanderthal could not is because, again, they migrated up north and they lived in a, a time when there was the Ice Age. And you just can't don't have much food, right? You're limited to your resources. So a population can't grow if you're hunting literally only one food source, which for them was the mammoth. And then in Spain, they had to live on some plants. So, again, a population can grow, but it needs good resources. So, um with eons of time, with lots of populations and lots of people living over vast amounts of time, there should have been some population that succeeded in growing really good. And the fact that we just don't see that in the history means this very, something was peculiar with this, what they tell us versus what we see. Right. Yeah. Right. And if I could add one little thing, um, you and I uh, constantly talk about genetics, levels of diversity. And so this goes with you know population growth the fact that if evolution were true and we've been evolving for millions of years from you know australopithecine like ancestors up to homo habilis up to homo erectus who lives on the planet for you know a million plus years and then eventually from homo erectus you get um 
all the different human variants, including Homo sapiens, right? Well, we would then expect high levels of genetic diversity. That's millions of years of mutations accumulating, mutations adding genetic diversity. But yeah, what do we find today, Matt? Humans have incredibly low genetic diversity. Well, wait a minute. What's up with that? If deep time evolution is true, why are we so uniform? Why are we all 99.99999% similar? Well, from the biblical starting point, God creates two people, Adam and Eve. Right off the bat, that restricts genetic diversity. And so what do we expect? Today, low genetic variation in humans. And that's exactly what we find. Fits perfectly. So um, again, great time to be a biblical creationist. So, all right, here we go. Doki Doki Bible Club. The man with the plan. Thank you so much, brother. And uh, I know it's a busy week with the conference. So I do want to thank all of our uh, awesome mods in the chat. Uh, also, reminder, the Standing for Truth official podcast. Um, we, uh, we just added, I think, four or five more episodes to the Standing for Truth podcast. So definitely check that out. And here we go. Matt, did man really live? That's one of your favorite topics, brother. 900 years, like Genesis says. Absolutely. When we look at what uh, scripture was saying versus what evolution says, like uh, they say that humans only live half as long as we do today. Maximum, like what, like 20 years, 15 years. That's not very long, right? But we say the exact opposite. They live for hundreds of years. So we would say that genetics plays a factor in this, right? So when they first started doing genetic studies, they said, ah, it only makes about 10% of your lifespan. And then pretty soon it was 20% and 25%. Now it's 35%. They're realizing that genetics plays a huge factor in how long we live. And now we know that, check this out, when we use CRISPR, which is a gene editing software, things live 25% longer when we alter even a single gene. That's right, one gene in... A mouse allows it to live 25% longer. But wait a minute, that's going back in time to a more pure genome, exactly what we said, right? So they said, well, soon humans will be level to live for a thousand years. What model makes that prediction? What model says that? That's why it's a, it's a paradox in the evolutionary model, why we age, like what's going on? Um, for more on that one, I recommend people watch the video, Evidence for Man to Live to 900. That's uh, highly detailed and... Uh, Got an entire book on it, even. It's dirt, dirt, <laughs> dirt cheap, 453. <laughs> so, yes, people lived a very long time. Genetics shows that the potential is within us still to this day. So, I mean, what else can you say? You can't deny it when people are literally admitting that it is true. The geneticists want us to live longer. They're called transhumanists. They're like, we can fix the genome. We can live like we used to. We can go back in time to the pure genome. What is that? That's the exact opposite of evolution. They're saying we didn't live long. So if you remove the mutations, should we literally be living half as long? Come on. Good question. So what happens when the evolutionist says, but Matt, man is living longer than he, than, than we have ever lived in, in the history of mankind. So, you know, what are you talking about? Let's, let, let's pretend I'm the evolutionist. How would you respond? Yeah. Lifespan and genetic potential are different things. We live in a world today that's very easy. We can uh, we can improvise. We can come over and put people in a hospital and keep them alive and going. The genetic potential was always in people, but life was so hard. Disease was everywhere. People were dying at young age. They were going off to war. It was it's it's not that the genetics wasn't there. It was that life was bad. It was hard. Right, and um, because of medicine and you know taking care of each other the average lifespan may have 
increase, the average. But the um, you know ultimate lifespan, how long man can live, has not um, increased at all. Um, so what that means is, right, Matt, quality of life. Just because the average lifespan has increased, well, a lot of times, you know, the, the quality of life is not so good, right? Because of, um, you know, how older people may be um, living longer in the first place. While compared to the biblical model, as you're pointing out, especially with gen with genetics, can you touch on the? Uh, is it the antioxidant called um, superoxide dismutase? And I'm not sure if that's the one that that relates to lobsters and how they have more of this specific antioxidant that allows them to actually live to a thousand. Can you touch on that? Yeah. Yeah. We have three metabolic enzymes inside of us that are um, not functioning as much as they should be because of, again, genetic uh, entropy. We have um, less methylation factors, MTFR. So what happens is if we look at the metabolic production of something like superoxide dismutase, glutathione peroxidase, glutathione reductase, and catalase, these metabolic enzymes break down or catalyze the most damaging thing inside of our body, which are free radicals, oxidation. They break them down in segments based on how strong the liver is and how well it's functioning and extract it. So if we lived in a world that was cleaner, more pure, eating better and had better genetics and had a more functioning metabolic system, we would live longer. For example, lobsters. Lobsters still have a highly functioning superoxide dismutase, which is a metabolic enzyme in their liver. And they they break down things in a different rate. They're therefore, they live much longer, like 250 years. They never stopped growing. So they found one that was huge. They killed it and they ate it, of course. But one of the things that made them do is like, wow, that's, why are they... Why are they living so long? So they kill young ones and they realize, wow, they produce much more of this metabolic enzyme. So when we look into the past and we see humans did the same thing, what does that tell us? It only tells us one thing. Humans had the ability to live longer genetically, biologically, and metabolically. That's it. Amen. Well said. Well said. You know, and we've had uh, lectures from you on this topic, you've had several debates on this topic, you know, did man live to 900? It's funny because the evolutionists, they want to scoff at that concept. But every time you've done a debate on this topic, biblical longevity, they have not been able to uh, refute your points. They have not been able to counter the science. And we've been doing in 2022, an evolution debate challenge series, where as a team, right, we all have our different expertise. And you have been taking up uh, those that are willing to debate that topic of, of biblical, biblical longevity, but not many evolutionists have actually stepped up to debate you on that. So um, it's funny because you told me a long time ago that uh, James from Modern Day Debate couldn't even find a creationist to talk right. on the subject. And it, now look, now they won't even take it. <laughs> it, it right. It, it's, it's one of our most powerful and irrefutable uh, positions that yeah, they just can't counter the data. It's funny because they were so bold and going, why can't nobody defend this? Come on, bring it on. And then I step in there and now no one wants to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Karen Weiss says, I want some lobster now. Yeah, ah, so exactly. <laughs> don't bother. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. Hey, go ahead. Don't, don't buy superoxide dismutase online and start taking it. It doesn't <laughs> It doesn't make a difference. Your, liver, your uh, hydrochloric acid of the stomach breaks it down. If you want to actually right. produce more, take an herb. These antioxidants, the potential in our genomes with a lot of these broken longevity genes going back in time, less mutation accumulation. So this whole argument that says, you know, man's living longer than they ever have 
uh, you know, in the history of mankind. No, the average has gone up, yes, but the maximum possible lifespan has not gone up. Okay, take this point of most accumulating genetic damage back to a point of least accumulating, uh, you know, mutational load. That'd be a point of perfection, a point of, of increased lifespan. So it's pretty basic, but unfortunately, a lot of the evolutionists are willingly ignorant. So, okay, let me get the uh, next question up here. Uh, this one comes in from Michael Hu. Question for Matt. Has there been any similar observations for plant genetics? Are they capable of telling us specifics like our genetics? Plant genomes are actually much larger than ours. Huge, huge. And that's because they're rooted into the ground. They can't get up and move like us, right? So they have to be much more diversified or else they die. So the genetics of plants are very unique and kind of more specific just to them. And they don't really roll over into human beings very good. So no, that's why we mostly test worms and, and mice because their genetic makeup is much more similar to what would happen inside of us. And um, they've tried to roll it over into plants, but just doesn't really work. Awesome. Appreciate that. Okay. Next question that comes in. Um, let me see here. Here's another one from born again, RN. Lots of good questions. Question for Matt. How do evolutionists explain male and female sexual organs evolving simultaneously for two people to reproduce since it allegedly uh, takes millions of years? That's a question for them because that's one of their problems. That's a paradox for them that they have to account for literally multiple organisms. Look at um, sexual reproduction versus asexual reproduction. Sexual reproduction is much more efficient and it's in much many more things. So how in the world did it evolve male and female dr drastically everywhere across all these different organisms? That's They're going to have to invent, again, co-evolution down the line for all of them at the same time. That's That's their problem, not not ours well why did some precursor organisms evolve sexual reproduction in the first place i mean to produce asexually i mean less mouths to feed less work to do you know so it doesn't make any sense evolutionary speaking if selection and mutations are all about survival of the fittest survive to the next generation yeah right selection is not worried about you know that which is long term so it's or just bread with yeah. itself like hermaphrodites yeah <laughs> So uh, here's uh, the pale Galilean, obviously not understanding 99% uh, of what you're saying because he had more of a comment, a rhetoric. I thought I'd give you the opportunity to respond. So he says, so basically incest is okay. What an argument. And he gives you a couple uh, round of applauses. So Matt, he's coming at you. How do you respond, brother? Well, it's banned in the Bible for a reason, but it wasn't banned at first. And that's because God created us and he knew it was okay to do at first. And besides, what do you mean it's okay? It's okay in the evolutionary model. <laughs> so, right. so it's it's okay. It's, it's okay for you, but not okay for us. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> it's like when you start with two people, Adam and Eve, then for a few generations or after, you know, the, the world's not all puppies and rainbows. Yeah, for, for a few generations after, you know, the special creation event, well, what? You know, the, there's really no other, um, it, anything else you can do at that point. But as you've pointed out, the genetics, right? The genetics would have been more superior. Okay, inbreeding is a sneak preview into where we are going genetically as a species. Deleterious recessive mutations come to the forefront and they degenerate, they lead to disease, they lead to problems. But Adam and Eve created genetically heterozygous, as you've been talking about, Matt, with this pre-existing uh, beneficial diversity. 
Yeah, go ahead, brother. He's on my door. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) no worries. Um, With this pre-existing beneficial diversity, you wouldn't have any deleterious mutations, disease-causing mutations in recessive form to come to the forefront, okay? But as time goes on, deleterious mutations accumulate in populations over time. So we have Moses in Leviticus, okay, showing once again, holy men speak as they're moved by the Holy Ghost, that the Bible is the word of God because it's accurate in all things, including science. Okay, it's not a science textbook, but when it speaks on uh, scientific topics, guess what? It's always right. And so we see um, at the time of Moses and the law, um, Moses basically, as Matt pointed out, uh, banned ancestral relationships. And from a genetic standpoint, from a health standpoint, that makes sense because by that time, so many deleterious mutations would have accumulated that it would lead to what we see today. Disease, genetic degeneration, okay, inbreeding is is not good. But with the evolutionary model, that's all they have is inbreeding. You go back to the, uh, and I'll just keep talking until Matt comes back. You go back to the out of Africa population bottleneck. Matt and I were talking earlier about how humans have low genetic diversity. Okay, that's consistent with our model. Thousands of years ago, God creates two people, Adam and Eve, and automatically that's going to restrict uh, restrict genetic diversity. In the evolutionary model, you have a lot of genes floating around. Okay, and uh, Matt, I just told them I'll keep talking until you come back. So I'll wrap up my point here. In order to explain the low genetic diversity in humans today, evolutionists look to what? a near extinction event in their out of Africa scenario where you have what? Severe inbreeding, incest, which shows us that this isn't even scientifically reasonable or plausible or logical because the evolutionary community explains all genetic diversity as being the result of mutations. So now contrary, okay, in in difference to the creation model, you have all of these deleterious mutations that are just sitting there in recessive form ready to be manifested to come to the forefront leading to rapid uh, genetic degeneration. No, it is the evolutionists that have an inbreeding problem. So to the pale Galilean, you need to study your own, you know, story or fairy tale that, that you claim to believe in. And that's the problem, Matt, with a lot of the evolutionists is they want to present challenges to the biblical creation model while not, um, while not, understanding their own model or story. So here's a super chat comes in from Lou, $5. Appreciate it. He asks, how did the evolution community react to water being older than the sun? Like Genesis 1-1 explained. Oh my gosh. I can't sit down with some, some, someone ringing the doorbell. What's the world's going on? <laughs> it might be an atheist coming after you, Matt, after this uh, irrefutable pr- presentation. <laughs> It's just ridiculous. I had nobody ever stops by. I it's just ridiculous. Yeah, that new research is pretty crazy. Um, I haven't heard a rescue device for it yet, but um, I do have a slide for that. Where are you? Ah, um, yeah, I don't know what they're gonna say because it doesn't make sense logically. But you, you see, what happens is they date they base everything about their history on radiometric dating, right? So if we're if they're finding uranium that dates older than they anything, 
then they're they're going to have to assume that oh well, I guess water is older than the actual universe itself, which can't be true. It can't be there. Remember, one of the predictions that the uh, the universe coming from nothing the states that, well, it did come from something. It came from magnetism. Magnetism was there. But nobody would ever say that there was water. You can't condense water that small. Water can't come from something that small. So just absolutely another another ridiculous thing. Ah, someone's knocking, man. I got to go. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I'll, I'll keep the audience occupied until... Uh, until they come back. So again, everybody, thank you so much for the questions, the engagement. Uh, you know, this is a comprehensive week defending Genesis uh, tomorrow. Okay. We will be back here for a couple more epic shows. I'm excited at five o'clock. We're going to have a two-parter all in one. So we're going to have John Mackay, the creation guy and Joseph Hubbard, two of my all-time favorite uh, young earth creationists. Uh, you know, the, these brothers are a blessing. And um, they're, they're just so great at addressing uh, the challenges put forth by the evolutionary community. So we're going to have a two-parter. Joe Hubbard, he'll be uh, talking about dinosaurs in the Bible, um, everybody's favorite topic. And then we're going to be having uh, Doki Doki Bible Club says, the pizza delivery guy will not quit. Yeah, you know, if, if I wasn't uh, over here in Canada with Matt in uh, California, I would definitely uh, stop by for a couple slices. So uh, then we're going to have John Mackay, the creation guy, and he's going to be giving a presentation on the G illogic column. So he's going to be uh, he's going to be refuting uh, deep time and a lot of these arguments um, that are uh, anti-global flood, then I'm going to be giving a presentation uh, titled, you know, debunking the best ev uh, evidence for evolution. And I'll be focusing on um, pseudogenes, chromosome two fusion, nested hierarchies, endogenous retroviruses, ALU sequences, the fossil record, so on and so forth. So that should be fun. And then on... Thursday, we have uh, two more presentations, one from Dr. Jerry Bergman. So he'll be here uh, giving a presentation on Darwin's blunders. And then we're going to be having our very own uh, flood researchers, Professor David McQueen, and also um, George Bond giving a presentation on amazing evidence for the worldwide flood. So hopefully Matt is okay. There was a, a knock at the door or his, uh, his doorbell went off. And I'm a little concerned because he did just give an irrefutable uh, presentation for over two hours that I am sure um, it was guaranteed to offend or trigger some of the atheists and evolutionists. So they may have uh, tracked him down <laughs> and, uh, you know, the Aaron Ra's of the world might not be too happy. So let's uh, keep our uh, fingers crossed that uh, Matt is okay and he'll be back with us shortly. So Born Again RN says uh, Matt got raptured. Yes, could be the case. Um, the scary thing about that is we've all been left behind. So unfortunately, we're not doing uh, something right. <laughs> uh, so if you're just joining us, this is uh, session three of our Defending Genesis conference. So yesterday we, we kicked off the week with uh, the relevance of Genesis with Sal Jardina. Uh, this was uh, very informative, very important. And uh, I believe the perfect way to start off the week, right? The, the relevance of Genesis, why uh, taking Genesis at face value as, as a historical account of our origins uh, seriously. 
you know, the, the, the Bible is true. The Bible claims to be the history book of the universe. And it just so turns out that um, uh, scientific data, the empirical scientific data corroborates that. Um, so just looking at the comments. Yeah. Uh, cool. <laughs> cool. Jesus. Uh, I guess I'll just keep going. So, and then we had T rock, uh, the isochron method and other dating duds. So we went for a little bit over an hour and a half there. A great presentation, very technical. And, um, uh, you know, we went over some of the, the, the challenges, talking points, objections, during our, our discussion portion of that. Okay. Now, Friday is day five, and that is going to be a, a fun day as well. That's going to wrap up the conference. Um, on Friday, we're going to be having uh, Matt Powell here. He'll be giving a presentation titled uh, Evidence for Creation, Evidence for Young Earth Creation specifically. And uh, then right after that, at eight o'clock uh, EST, we're going to um, wrap up the entire conference with a debate. So it will be a continuation, technically, of the Evolution Debate Challenge series. It'll be uh, Dr. Dino and David Emery, the much-anticipated round two. Uh, with this debate, they're going to be focusing specifically on... Uh, they're going to be focusing specifically on macroevolution. So it uh, should be fun. And uh, Matt is back. Matt, we were worried that uh, some of the atheists tracked you down after this uh, epic presentation and uh, would force you to take it down so uh, nobody else could watch it and get converted. So, <laughs> well, they wouldn't be doing too good right now. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong well, person to pick on in the community. <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, okay. Actually, that's a good question. Cool, Jesus. Uh, you know, there's several debates that I've always wanted to see happen. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to say, praise the Lord. I made them happen on this channel. A couple of those debates, well, the creation versus evolution debates in general, any of them are fun. So every single debate that we've done in the uh, evolution debate challenge series is just a dream debate because I have so much fun with those debates. Theology wise, I've always wanted to see for years. I've wanted to see uh, Matt Slick, Dr. Shabir Ali debate. We made that happen last year. That was epic. In the world of soteriology, I've always wanted to see, uh, you know, Bob Wilkin and Robertson Genis debate. We made that happen. And uh, we got an epic debate coming up between um, actually uh, Steve Christie, who's in the chat, Born Again RN. He'll be debating Robertson Genis on uh, the Marian doctrines. So we've hosted now about 220 debates on all sorts of topics, but we've never had a debate specifically on. Um, the Roman Catholic doctrine of, of, you know, the veneration of Mary. So that's coming up and that's going to be, that's going to be pretty epic. Um, and, and a couple of years ago, as you know, Matt, we had Dr. Kevin Anderson and Jackson Weed. That was a technical debate. That was a ton of fun. Okay. So with that being said, Matt, you're all, uh, you're all recovered and we'll, um, we'll, we'll do a speed round here getting to the last final questions. Okay. Cool. Jesus asks, and cool Jesus always has fantastic questions. So appreciate you being here in the live chat. And I know you'll be here tomorrow with uh, John Mackay and Joseph Hubbard. So cool Jesus asks, does Matt see a relationship between DNA and kinds? I don't understand how we can have so many kinds with one species like aardvark, red panda, African palm civet, dasy rat, etc. 
you would want to look and determine whether or not the same kind by looking at orphan genes. Orphan genes are a dead giveaway because they're taxonomically restrictive genes that are always mm. within the same family. So if you're ever in doubt and want to know like, hmm, are are these uh, are orphan genes um, uh, over here? Do we see these? What is are they are they uh, are they definitely within this group? Are they are they outside of it? That'll pretty much tell you because they're very, very uh, localized and they are based on function. They do a lot of transcription and they're very small genes. They're very short, so they should be easy to find. So that's one good way. And, but you always want to follow the lineages of autosomal. Auto, uh, autosomal. And then after that, you want to look to mtDNA and then best case scenario, the Y chromosome. Those will always trace lineages. All of the things outside of that are assumption based. So when you see these uh, things based on protein coding genes, they're always going to build a different phylogenetic chart. And we, that that's not how they're built. That, that, that's all made up. So don't even look at them like they're some type of hierarchy. It's not true. They're based on function. That's why there is genetic similarity. So like I said earlier, you know, if the hand grows a particular way, it's going to show a genetic sequence for that. That's why there is more similarity based on something having a very similar type of hand, but also how that hand is even formed. Okay. Yeah, that's a good answer. That's why we, um, I've made several predictions in this book and you've made several predictions as well, Matt. Um, it, it's the evolutionary community that assumes all DNA differences are the result of mutations over time, right? That's why they've erroneously concluded in the past, now they have egg on their face, that uh, DNA units like pseudogenes are, you know, shared genetic mistakes. And now we know that they're necessary to sustain healthy life processes in the cell. But, uh, you know, these so-called, you know, quote-unquote mutations that cross kind boundaries, that form hierarchical patterns, it's the evolutionists that assume those really are mutations. And this is where um, my predictions come into play in, in my endogenous retrovirus handbook, Matt. And you've made some fantastic points and predictions on this as well, that uh, where the evolutionists assume is, is a mutation that is shared, let's say, in primates. That, that forms a hierarchy, we're saying, no, this is not necessarily a mutation if it's fixed for one, right? So where they say it's a shared mutation in an endogenous retroviral-like sequence between humans and chimpanzees, that means that it's fixed, okay? So we're saying, no, this is not necessarily a mutation. This could reflect design diversity. This could reflect the functional requirements of the respective organism. And that's where you've pointed out, Matt, if you could speak on this briefly, um, if you were to subject these uh, DNA differences, let's say, or these specific um, DNA positions to mutations artificially, if they result in disease, right? If a disease manifests, what does that say about that, that specific, uh, let's say, DNA element? That would mean that it's uh, attached to probably some type of a function. Right. So a matter of fact, you know, if you're going to get a, a single nucleotide variance in a particular region and it, it causes a, a mutation that affects your liver, you go, oh, man, this this must do something in the liver that we don't know yet. It must have some beneficial function there because when it mutates, it affects your liver. Kind of like when we get a mutation in the PAC6 gene and it affects your eyes. Before we would have ever known what the PAC6 gene did, we would know that it has something to do with the eyes. Right. Exactly. And one last thing I want to add, I'm going to be touching on this tomorrow. Matt, you constantly hear the evolutionists say, well, you know what, if there's, if God created distinct kinds, okay, what are the limits? 
what are the limits in this change? And as we point out, Matt, if God created original created archetypes and then the arc archetypes and they were heterozygous rather than homozygous, well, that means we get adaptive episodes. We get changes over time through what? Shifts in heterozygosity which is a state of more genetic diversity to homozygosity, which is a state of lesser genetic diversity. So over time, the more shifts in heterozygosity to homozygosity that occur, species hit walls because there's less allelic variability, okay, to be called upon for change. Doesn't that make that's genetic limits that God has front loaded into the original created kinds because there's all there's only so many shifts in heterozygosity to homozygosity a creature can take isn't that right matt exactly and that's what we keep seeing we we watch a species form and every time that that species is formed there's less information that's there they can right. say oh well it'll roll back well it would only be able to roll back if it breeded with something else that was heterozygous again. But if it keeps losing and keeps getting more homozygous, that's why we run into the cheetahs today that are almost right. extinct. That's why conservationists exist in the world. How can you get how many? How, how come so many species are going extinct and conservationists keep trying to save them and without without much success? It's because if it was able to save them, we could, but they're losing them. We're losing them left and right genetically. That shouldn't be true if evolution's real. Right. The cheetahs have a lot of homozygous loci. Conservationists are worried about them. Their sperm is degenerate. They're down to like 7,000. Um, so cool. Jesus says, I understand what Matt was saying. My point of, uh, of tension is some kinds have lots of genetic diversity in brackets. There's more species within what we would say is the same kind. Let's yeah. say the felid kind, right? You've got what? Jaguars, tigers, lions, house cats. Uh, that we would say originated from a more heterozygous um, cat archetype where, where from those pre-existing DNA uh, differences, you get all the felid variations today. Same with the uh, canid. Uh, but some have little diversity, one species only. Maybe um, the platypus would be an example of that, perhaps. What are your thoughts on that, brother? Uh, yeah, I could... Um... There might be a limit based on what was on the arc. For example, we have cats and cats are very, very similar looking um, no matter where they are. The, you, if you get the bone structure of a cat, you can't even tell what species it is. You, there's almost no way. Even a specialist can't tell the difference. But we look at deer, our equids, and now they're very, very different. But yet they, they almost fill in the same ecological niches as cats. So it seems as though the deer maybe because they were a clean animal and there were seven of them on the ark, maybe there was already more diversity on the ark as where a cat is an unclean. So only two of them were even on the ark. So they would have less genetic diversity as where an equid or a deer species, there's seven kinds on the ark. So there's already more genetic diversity in them. So when they fill up the earth, there's different phenotypic diversity. And you're like, wow, that's a deer. It looks like a little dog, right? It's because there was much more variety in them. So we would answer that by looking at the Noah story. And isn't it also going to be based on um, which kinds were taken in sevens versus, let's say, just two, right? But also um, history, population history, environment. Let's use Neanderthals as an example. <clears throat> and I touch on this in great detail, Matt. You and I did a lot of brainstorming for the chapter on it in, in the special creation book. You have uh, possibly as small as two, like siblings that break off from a greater population that are basically the uh, ancestors of Neanderthals. So let's say you have a family of even four, 
that break off and then they become isolated and they become inbred and they become very homozygous. Well, the population history and the environmental conditions that Neanderthals, a variant of humans, were subjected to would be different than other humans, especially us as modern humans that originated from a subset of humans off of, off of, uh, out of Babel, right? Okay, so, so we have more variation within us. We have also, um, you know, managed to disperse in all parts of the globe where you have this isolated, unfortunately, group of, of Neanderthals that were subjected to harsh conditions. They became highly inbred. Their rungs of homozygosity are massive. So the point is that variant of human hit a wall, basically. And what they were subjected to may have resulted in, in their extinction. So wouldn't that be the same with a lot of these arch archetypes, these arc kinds? You know, some of them go into more ideal environments. They have uh, more of a, what you could say, a, a healthy <laughs> population history where other arc kinds, unfortunately, um, may have uh, gone into harsher environments that did not allow for the manifestation of that uh, pre-existing ability to, to diversify. Um, can you speak on that? Does that make sense? And, and what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, we're going to have uh, species of all different kinds. Um, it's, and humans are no different. So always remember that. We don't know exactly the amount of genetic diversity that was in Noah, but if he was only 10 generations after Adam, that's not a lot of time. And so massive amounts of genetic diversity would be in humans. And that is kind of what we see. Um, we, we, when we even look in the fossil record, look at that massive genetic phenotypic differences, even in the skulls that we find. Right. And we're saying that, yeah, there are people, right. And wow, it's a lot of diversity. We have massive diversity even today. So our model best explains these differences. They explain why we're all so similar and yet uh, massive amounts of differences. And it explains the animals that we see. So I, that's why I really like the phenotypic diversity in comparison with the genetic differences, because genetic differences are, are uh, subjective based on time and environment and population size and where people live. There's a lot of variance, but phenotypic differences really kind of explain the discrepancies of evolution, especially when it comes to deep time. Because if you can turn a dog into a whale <laughs> in 1 million years, then what about all the other species that are identical that they've said live longer than a million years? Why, why is stasis everywhere? That's th That should be the main question. Stasis millions of years in multiple species everywhere we look all in all the different animal uh, kinds and yet we see rapid change today right where species are a little bit different than the ancestor but very similar to de degree right we find a crocodile it's a little bit different than the one in the ancient past but not that different not to the point where it's like oh that's totally different no there's stasis well and, and you know i think it's going to come down to as well a lot of your uh, arc archetypes moving into the new world, did they experience rapid and exponential population growth like humans, right? So some art kinds that experience rapid and exponential population growth, they would have had uh, more of their hidden reservoir of, of pre-existing heterozygosity basically being manifested in change. But other populations that went into, uh, you know, different environments that unfortunately, um, did not experience rapid and exponential population growth, they could lose very quickly the original uh, genetic diversity. 
right? Rather than other other populations, I think um, uh, it's definitely it's, it's definitely a good question though, and a lot to consider. So, okay, let, let me start wrapping it up with a couple more questions here. Michael, who asks? Has there been any similar observations for plant genetics? Are they capable of telling us specifics like, oh, no, no, we, we already did that one uh, right here. Alan, has there been DNA found from nephilim? Um, and I guess this is going to depend on one's position on, on what nephilim are. And if so, is it still found in, in uh, people today? That would be um, an argument based on uh, are the Nephilim uh, fallen angels or are they a different ge genetic line of human beings that were considered uh, a, a, a seed or yeah. uh, a remnant of a different people group? So if they were a genetic group of people, then it would be very hard to determine which, you know, which one it is. But yeah, they would be there would be a haplo group. Now, remember, um, uh, there was ways to identify Nephilim in the scripture, right? There was six fingers. Well, that's a form of inbreeding called polydactyly and that we can see. Um, so we would need to find, you know, a lineage of people that all share that very similar thing and then find out what mutation was in them for that haplogroup. And that would identify exactly what they are. If they're angels, then that would probably set them apart from humans and they would definitely stand out. Now, there's enough people out there watching ancient aliens and looking for that type of material that I, that would probably stand out as well by now. I, I don't keep up with that one. <laughs> but right. uh for right now, all we know is that when we trace the Y chromosome in humans and the mitochondria in humans, we just land on humans. We don't get an outward angelic source that seems to arise in one people and then vanishes. The only really strange thing in humans is RH negative blood, where the blood of the, usually people with red hair, white skin, they, they have a tendency where their blood will attack their own infant and kill them. That's a weird blood type that doesn't like what good sense is that. So it's a mutation that makes their blood very weird and unique. That's a good answer. Um, appreciate the question there, <clears throat> Alan. Yeah. So if one holds to the position, right, Matt, that basically, um, you know, the, the, the line of Seth and the daughters of men intermingling, you know, producing still humans and not um, some hybrid angel human offspring, then basically the DNA would, would just be human DNA. It's, it's not like we're really looking for some kind of angelic um, giant DNA, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah there'd yeah. be some, there would be one a lineage that we would find. We'd be like, you know, we'd test them and be like, wow, look at that. That's outside of the human range. Right. <laughs> um, okay. Let, let's do one last question. Cause we just hit the two, uh, three hour mark and we got another show coming up quickly. So uh, Doki Doki Bible club asks, Matt, have you heard of, Aaron Ra's phylogeny challenge. If the answer is yes, you want to briefly talk about it and why the challenge has already been solved and answered. And then we're going to wrap it up. We're wrapping it up with this solid question. Yeah, his phylogeny challenge was something that existed for quite a while. And he challenged a creationist to name anything that God created. The problem with that is we can go back to Noah's flood and we can trace animals back to there. And we're still left with like, I think this is what was on Noah's Ark because we can't even be definitive on that. Meaning that let's say that a cave bear was on Noah's Ark. Well, a cave bear only lived for a few generations, maybe a thousand years and then died and went extinct. But we know it had offspring and we know that other bears exist. So we can't be certain if it was a black bear or a brown bear or the cave bear because 
that species that might have been on the ark could have gone extinct. So we can extrapolate based on mutation accumulation, which one it could have been. But and that's the best we can do. You know, I trace chromosome count and mutations. Those are the best, in my opinion. But if that animal, if that particular species of that animal family went extinct, we can't know exactly what was on the ark. Now, if we can just assume what was on the ark, we can't even guarantee that is the species that God made, because you got to remember things were happening before the flood like they are now. So we just know that God sent Noah the animals that he chose. So did he choose a animal that would survive in the, today's world? Clearly. I mean, if the goal of Noah's Ark was for animals to diversify and fill the earth for mankind, it's, it's happened. It's everywhere we look. I mean, it, it, it worked. Noah's Ark survived it, but the, its purpose was served. Now to go past back past that. Well, we have to know that sure. Multiple bird families existed which exact one that's probably a lot easier to answer than what bear species see arn raw wants the fallacious exactly what species was it that's inference right that's going to the fossil record donnie and i like the fossil record to some degree but not much because it's so subjective we want to give you guys direct answers and it's very hard to directly answer exactly what species god made we could just say he made birds okay well that's useless you know what species of bird what species of bear did god make well right. we can guess but there's a lot of fossils that existed of bear species so we would have to pick which one and just guess we couldn't prove it genetically and we want to prove for you exactly so you're up all right great stuff matt great job we just hit the three hour mark now so we're going to wrap it up great endurance fantastic presentation matt i really appreciate all the work uh, and study you put into uh, tonight's show, uh, session three of our Defending Genesis Conference 2022. Uh, to everybody in the chat, thank you so much for all of your questions and uh, just for being so lively and engaged in the chat on this uh, important topic. There's nothing more important than uh, the origins debate and where you're going to spend uh, eternity. So just remember, it's a great time to be a young earth creationist and please share this around. Uh, the truth is important and critical thinking is also so uh, incredibly important. Matt, any last words, thoughts, brother? <laughs> no, I was just reading chat. They're funny comments coming. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Always funny when an atheist shows up. They keep me entertained. They keep me entertained. So uh, again, lots of kind words. Thanks, Matt and Donnie. Excellent. Thank you, guys. You're the, you're, you're the life of the, and blood of this channel. You are what uh, makes these conferences that we do so, so much fun, edifying, and it makes us want to do more. So Carmine says three more hours. So Matt, you and I, we're going to go uh, refill our coffee. And apparently this was just an appetizer. Three more hours for you guys. We love you. So anyways, yeah, after the conference, Matt, you and I will get together and uh, we'll we'll do a part two of this for sure. We can consider this a sneak peek. Anyways, Matt, thank you so much, brother. Uh, to the audience, we'll see you in, uh, well, this one went a little longer than expected. So we might push uh, the fourth session, but technically the second for today, we might push it to, let's say 1030 instead of 10. So, but anyways, we'll see you guys in the next uh, couple hours for sure with uh, CJ Cox on countering a compromise. God bless all Donnie and Matt. Are out.